Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Graham McMillan and I are here with our 300th episode, which appropriately enough is just a whisker shy of 300 hours. And it's three hours. To answer your questions and challenge our own life decisions. Topics discussed include how to feel good about comics, the secrets to Superman, our favorite anniversary issues, and of course the all-important question, who would we pick to play us in Wait What? The Movie? As always, we welcome your comments at waitwhatpodcast.com, your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham clear as a crystal McMillan. How you doing? That is that's been my nickname for years. It's it's been so weird. Yeah. Hey, I, ha- happy episode three hundred. Happy episode three hundred to you, sir. I gotta say, Graham, the weird part is a knowing that it's utterly arbitrary because in many ways we've gone beyond episode three hundred, what with other podcasts and our strange numbering, and the fact that we've had celebrations for. I don't know, 100, 200, and any other arbitrary numbers on the way. It feels, it feels strangely, feels strangely special to me. I'm very, I'm very weirdly emotionally invested in this. 300 feels like a thing. It's in, it feels like a thing weirdly more than like 100 or even 200. Like, yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't explain it. It's like 300 kind of means like, you know, I guess we're fucking sticking in it. Right. Exactly. You know? Even though, like you said, you know, if you add in the Baxter buildings and everything, this is like episode three. It's got to be, yeah, 70, 80, something like that. So I think, uh, I have to say that I think it was episode 100 where it still means a lot for me because we we I had a Google phone number that's since been disconnected. Yes, um, people in. Yes, yes, yeah, including you know people like Sean Witzke and uh, Haley all the way down in Australia. Bless her heart, called and uh, other people. <laughs> I swear, and it was one of those things where it felt <laughs> definitely other someone else did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so those are the two I really remember because it, it, you know it very touched, but. Um, but yeah, so that was so so that felt really great because that was actually um, the closest we had to any co-participation apart from apart from we did okay. This is where my memory is going to fail me. Okay, we we had Hibbs guessing on we one. We did somewhere. okay because there was then he was going to appear again and I uh, I canceled and, that and that just didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, uh, for for a variety of reasons, and then Steve Englehart. So, episode yes. one hundred was Wait, okay. kind I have of a question. of strangers. Yeah, you and I definitely talked about having Al Kennedy on at some point. It never happened, did it? No, 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 no. You know, we should have Al Kennedy on. At some it point. would be lovely, wouldn't it? I, as I recall, what happened was um, when I set up the Patreon levels, I definitely made noises because what i thought we would do and we went a different direction was um you know if we hit a certain level we would throw in a third weekly you know a third podcast for the month and i at the time i was 80 or 90 percent sure that that would be like our jam session whereas like we would have one guest on a month and and then talk and interview with them you know, and then instead we did 
uh, yeah, Baxter Building. Baxter Building. So, um, so yeah, road, road that never was. But at one point there was Al Kennedy, and I remember there was a few points where I was sort of half um, drafting up like a dream list of people that I figured that we could definitely hit up based on. If nothing else, the fact that they'd mentioned listening to us, you know what I mean? So, um, but, but, um, but we made the, <laughs> it's like it, it to completely, um, you know, crystallize us as a comic book podcast, we instead turned our back on socializing with others and became even more sol solipsistic <laughs> and doing even deeper dives into comic books. So well done us. Uh, yes. Good job. We, we were there. We were there at the start doing, doing the worst. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Reflecting the medium that we love in, in all the right ways. Uh, yeah. Including like, numbering that doesn't make sense as right. you just said absolutely numbering that does not make sense yeah yeah that's uh that is sobering i'm sorry everyone i mean you know that's the thing when we first started of course it was we had it, it was really hard to to make the time to talk and then then we would talk and it we would talk for two hours and I'd be like, shit, I better chunk, slice this up into half-hour segments. Because where... we didn't think that people would listen for that long. Remember? No, exactly. And everyone else was like, you know, it breaks up the conversational flow. And I'm like, well, thank God, because there's no way we can pay attention to a clock, either of us. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that ended up running. So that was weird. But also there was huge gaps of time where um where it was like we would only talk it'd be we were lucky if we would talk once every other month and then i would chop up the the things and release I, them i remember it being every month but maybe i'm misremembering it it might it well anyway it might be i i, I thought it, it was longer it until it wasn't to. yes no exactly exactly well so now here's a question for you did we do the first couple of these before Kind of David Brothers shamed you into getting a headset. Do you remember that? Uh, I don't remember that. That's very possible. Okay. I don't. I don't remember it. Well, I all I know is is that I kept making sort of harumphing noises, like you know, we should do a podcast. We should do a podcast. And you were like, yes, yes. I just need a headset. And and God bless him. Like David Brothers actually like swooped in on Twitter with like a link to like a. $12 headset or something like that. And you just, you got it immediately. I remember being really shocked, um, but happily so, because it really was kind of like the last little obstacle uh, in, in the way, I guess. And you kind of was like, it's up for whatever reason. I'm so glad you remember this because I swear to God, I don't. It makes sense. It totally makes sense. Uh, you know, I don't, it, 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 it's just, it makes sense that you don't because it's clear there was something that was going on that, like, I mean, I I think, assuming that it was a situation, apart from the idea of, like, you're like, I don't really know if I like Jeff enough to actually do a podcast with him. That's, that's obviously what it was. Well, it might have it might have <laughs> been. You don't remember. But uh, but I'm saying, like, I think, I think for... We started this when I was in Portland, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, I think so. by that uh -huh. point I decided that like I liked you enough to do a podcast with you. Guys. Well, I think so. I hope so. I mean, there was definitely that. I remember, um, God, remember when we'd get together and do the we did the 
watch parties for Battlestar Galactica? Yes. Yeah. Well, as I've told you, like I think I've told you, like I'm rewatching Battlestar Galactica now. You know, you did not tell me. I think I saw something on Chloe's Twitter. You'd said something. That you, I think I, th- I think I might have to... mentioned it, like on one of the ones where we weren't recording. But I think I literally just mentioned it. You know, you mentioned that you were interested and were going to do it. It might have been before you started, like because we were talking about shows that we kind of wanted to rewatch, and you did mention Battlestar Galactica. So yeah, definitely no, on the thing. I'm, but I didn't I'm think you started. I'm holding to your like stop at like you know after the first arc of episode of season three. Right. Like that's that's. That's yep. a that's a rule. Yeah, don't worry. I we're, think we're thank there. God, thank God. You and I are in the same place. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how how, how where are you at, and how's that holding we're, up? We're we're still not through the first season because here's the thing: we keep getting distracted by other shows. Of course, of course. Um, nothing against Peacock. Well, actually, there is something against Peacock. It has ads if you're not paying for it, and we're mm. not paying for it, so mm. we have ads. Uh, but no, we have. We've been distracted by by a multitude of other things, mm-hmm. uh, like for example, this weekend we're rewatching the Batman films because mm. HBO Max just added Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and um, Batman, Batman and Robin. Robin. Yeah, they also mm-hmm. added the. Um, Batman Begins in the Dark Knight, but I could not give less of a shit about the Christopher Nolan Batman films. Right. Um, whereas Batman Returns is fucking great. So, like, you know, that that's, that's how, we, how we got onto that. Batman Returns is great, huh? That's Batman, interesting. I, it is. It's not... Uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, it's great. It's maybe not necessarily good, but it's great. Right, 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 right. I think yeah. I think that that is... It's definitely up there in Tim Burton movies, and I would say that Tim Burton is a maker of um, erratic movies, I guess, you know? Yes. Well, no, it's, it's what's funny is we, we uh, literally just finished Batman Returns and started Batman Forever. No, mm-hmm. Batman. Yeah, it's Batman Forever. Yeah. Um, where it goes from Burton to Joel Schumacher. Yeah. And you will never be so aware of how monochromatic Tim Burton films are mm-hmm. uh, until you literally go from one to Joel Schumacher right. where everything is fucking neon. Yeah. And you know, honestly, I, I, you know, R.I.P. Joel Schumacher, like that dude, um, you know, I think we might have mentioned him when he passed. There's some really interesting, well, interesting things in that guy's career. But I saw the first, I saw Batman, I saw Batman Returns, which I thought was, you know, parts were brilliant and parts were just execrable. And then I skipped over Batman Forever because I just... I didn't, I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, it didn't fry my burger. And then I saw Batman and Robin in the theaters, which on opening night, even, which was, why? Uh, uh, wait, did you say why? Yes. Well, so uh, I, well, you know, actually, Graham, this is, I, I will answer you as long as I get to turn it around and ask you a question. And okay. But I will say this. We should do both these quickly because other people have asked us a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I, I, I feel like this is a little aperitif, a little am- okay. amuse-bouche, okay. Okay. even though I think let's I had some let's questions for you. Our yeah, 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 exactly. Oh. Bouche amusing. So I, I, I had a semi-newish girlfriend at the time. We had just started dating. And so there was a little bit of the... What do you want to do? Do you want to do? She lived down in Mountain View at the time, and she was near um, one of those like South Bay movie theaters that that practically has its own weather system. 
And I don't know why, because she was friends with my roommates at the time, it was this classic sort of everyone was like, let's get together and do something. But because there's a weird mix of it's not quite a date and it's not quite a bunch of people hanging out, it somehow seemed imperative that no one express anything like a genuine desire, right? So... So basically Batman for Batman and Robin won, I think by dint of no one complaining. Well, yeah, yeah kind of like one person put it out there and then nobody could quite like there was no one's indifference no one was strong say, enough. Yeah. No, no yeah. one could quite verbalize a reason not to. Yes. Later on after my girlfriend and I had been dating my girlfriend at the time, she she bought me a Smashing Pumpkins album and I got the sense that she thought that I was a bigger Smashing Pumpkins fan that I, than I was. And I'm also somehow wondering if maybe, because as I recall, Batman and Robin is the one with the Smashing Pumpkins song that she might've thought that I wanted to see it because I liked comics and Smashing Pumpkins. Cause I sort of remember what, her what suggesting great, it. What a great sort of combination of those things. Yeah, right. Like, like her, her being like, "Oh, do you know what he's into? He's into comics and Billy Corgan." Right, right, exactly. And you know, kind of not totally off base. Obviously, comics. I mean, obviously, yeah. Batman. And frankly, there, there was Smashing Pumpkins were uh, had done stuff that I was like, really thought were was great. But I mean, like. I hadn't even purchased the big melancholy double album. You yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And the Infinite Sadness, right? Like, I didn't have it. There was a couple of songs that I loved listening to that I remember. I probably was turned it, them up on the radio. Butterfly Wings? Was yes, of course. Was in a cage? Yes, despite all my rage. No, it's not, actually. It's not. I actually really liked the sort of weird, more mellow-y moving into the harder rock stuff. So... So 1979, which got played to within an inch of its fucking life. Oh, God, yeah. I remember that song was everywhere. 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 And um, uh, uh, one of the most disappointing slash movie soundtrack uh, dual experiences of my life was going to see singles, Cameron Crowe's singles. Wow. Um, which I don't think I've ever seen that film, but I remember loving that soundtrack. See, where is the soundtrack? I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And I liked so little of it. But but honestly, because I'm not I'm not I to the extent that I ever enjoyed grunge. I was more in the 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 poppy side. Like I was I was I was a Nirvana fan. I was not an Alice in Chains fan. I could sometimes like a Soundgarden song. I almost never liked a Pearl Jam song, you know. So for me, my favorite song on the single soundtrack, I think, was that was that Smashing Pumpkins song, which was the first time I'd ever heard the Smashing Pumpkins. And I was like, this is really good. I like this a lot, you know. And- uh, I remember that that album had, um, shit, what was the Pearl Jam song on there? State of Love and Trust. Like, I remember loving that song on it. Really? Really? Yeah, I, I, I was really, really into Pearl Jam at that time. No way! My, my, my utter shame. I was into Pearl Jam for the first two albums. Oh, shit! Bound. Oh, my no, God! You've never said yeah. this out loud, Graham! I, Holy I know, God! I 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I really liked the first two albums. And then, like, literally Britpop happened. I was like, I don't like this anymore at all. Oh, well, that's I like good. songs that sounds like the Beatles. Yes. Well, see, and, and honestly, I suppose I would have, too, if I had come into at Britpop from the right angle, which I somehow utterly well, missed. But I mean, um, the right angle for me was, like, I was, what, like, 19 years old? And in the UK, and right, you know exactly. Like... No, 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 no. And that's that. I mean, that is literally what I mean. If I was, if I had either of those two factors going for me, like especially both, but I think honestly, either of those two, I would have made that entrance. By the way, listeners, I hope I just have to mention a, a fun behind the scenes tidbit. Part of what makes this so delightful is Graham and I were actually uh, messaging one another about Britney Spears' toxic. Uh, earlier this week and it that was um that was a great conversation so uh, that helped me out a ton so i'm very excited I, that we could like, talk we about were this both like now. this is a fucking great song absolutely great song yeah like it, yeah it's pop perfection and i was like have you heard the mark ronson version yeah which like i'm surprised you hadn't i really had not i really had not um, i fucking love the mark ronson version of toxic well so, so one thing i do want to mention because you had mentioned it uh, is uh well it and it'll come up in in one of our questions i think which we have to get to uh is uh, up until about 2005 2006 like I would say I would say that I my interest in finding, discovering, and listening to music over from the time that I started to about fifteen to the time that I started to about thirty five, what like cooled over time, but still was such that someone would describe me as a music lover, like sheltered in their tastes maybe as time went on, but basically a music lover, like the. Even even in even at the age of thirty five, when you could find them, I would be in a record store and cluck 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 cluck. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then um, that was around the time that I seriously tried to write a book, and some and during the process of getting from literally the first draft to something like the seventh draft, I had to stop. First, it was I had to stop listening to music that had lyrics to it. So I was only listening to orchestral stuff and soundtrack stuff. And that actually stuck through the second book, I think. And then at the end of that, I was so burnt um, until until we moved down here to Moss Beach. And I and I loaded up. a. I just had a huge, weird desire probably because so much of this area reminds me of where i grew up to start listening to to old country western again mm -hmm. um the last five or six months has been um, me more interested and more passionate about music than i literally have been in the last decade which is part of why i think i missed that mark ronson song but right? it, it's it's yeah because that was that was I like 2011 or years, something. Yeah, yeah, ten years old or something. Right. Yeah. So, um, but no, I, I just it's just a fun cover. Oh, of, it's of, wonderful. A fun song. Yeah. I've I've listened to it several times since, and I love it. And I also, I also think that um, you know we talk about the the future and what it'll bring and all the nightmares that are streaming services and the horrifying thing that are holograms that will add the. Um, you know, people who, who who long want to just be dead end up selling like vacuum cleaners and Coca-Cola and stuff. But I say that and the day that whatever company spends money 
enough money that you can have a digitalized personal assistant who talks to you in looks and sounds and has the cadence of old dirty bastard. I am there. <laughs> I am there. There is there is I, no I'm other sure way. That is being worked on right now. I hope so. I hope so because I think it would be great to be like you know, bunk Siri. What time is it? You know, bunk. It's time to get dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I just there's parts in Mark oh, Ronk okay. in okay. that song where it's like you know he's like dirty wanna go, don't want to go on no vacation or something and I'm just like. I love you, ODB. I love you so you, you've much. Heard, you've heard the Rhymefest uh, Build Me a Buttercup, right? I don't think so. Oh, so it, it's it's um, it, it's Rhymefest writing a letter to ODB. Oh, wow. Uh, and ODB singing Build Me a Buttercup in response. Oh, no way. Okay. Um, when I say singing Build Me a Buttercup, that's actually what he's doing. It's just that it's, it's old dirty bastard. And oh. so... Like, I love it. Can he do it? Right. That's that's kind of an open question that yeah. I think everyone should ask themselves until they go and listen to the song. I would love it, to hear it's, that. It's great. It's also, great. also, I have to say, now that I think about it, I'm like, right, that's who would be my version. That would be the voice of Ben Grimm in my version of the Fantastic Four. Would oh, be God. I, I would never have thought that. And you know what? I would love an ODB Ben Grimm. Yeah, absolutely. That, that would be great. Yeah, I think so, too. That'd be ODBG. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, ask me the questions super quickly, and then we can get on to the actual questions people have asked me. Oh, oh, right. So I answered your question. Boy, that took too long. Uh, Graham, you and Chloe, one of the things that I think is great about Chloe, and there's a lot of things, honestly, and I haven't spent that much time actually in person with her, but she is very funny. She's very sharp. She's very tuned into the world. She's very compassionate person as far as i can tell and and on t uh, 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 there's a slew of other things but also on the list is she is a super comic book nerd and yes. um i am kind of curious what it is like if this is not going to risk ruining the relationship for you to talk <laughs> about what it is like um being in a relationship with someone who is uh if not as comic book nerdy as you, at least in oh, the same I, I, co comic I, I, book nerd weight class. You know yeah, what I mean? I, I think I think she is, if not arguably more. I, I think so as well, but I haven't spent enough time to necessarily prove that. But um, the short version is it's great. Okay. Like it's really it's really great, in part because like not only are there references that we can make that the other person will get. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, like we just we have we have tangents that are just completely fucking nerdy, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. they're they're absolutely insanely nerdy, right? Uh, and it's just uh, it's it's delightful. It I I um I, I I'm trying to think what I can say that isn't like either gushing too much mm -hmm. or like uh, you know inappropriate to say. I guess right, right. Um, and that's no, okay. If it makes you feel better, though, we can pivot to the fact that although I am genuinely 100% um, delighted for you and uh, maybe a little bit jealous because I think I think every comic book nerd 
kind of does have that fantasy of what if they end up in a relationship with somebody who's <laughs> as nerdy as them? You know what I mean? Like it's kind of a furtive fantasy, but I, maybe it's just me, but I know that I've had it. And, uh, but part of me is like, I'm so glad that's so great. And in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, now that he has those discussions with Chloe, I'm just <laughs> that much closer to I being will, easily replaced. I yes. will say this. She did look through the questions we were asked. Yeah. <laughs> And she, she had feelings. Oh, of course she did. Of course she did. God, I would love to get it, have her in <laughs> to hear some of her answers. So, okay. Um, no, it, it's it's uh, it's it's like it is. It's it's an utter joy. Like uh, it's joy in ways that like I hadn't even imagined for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but also, I should tell you that like our shared comic book collection is fucking ridiculous. Oh, oh, I know. Honestly, that because as someone who had, I went to the Frankenstein comic swap with you, right? Or am yes. I right? No, no, you didn't. No, you went to the the Folly Comics, the one that's the, in someone's basement. Right. No, you and I went to the basement, basement sale. But yeah. I swear to God. Well, anyway, the essential gist of it is, listeners, is I know. I know maybe because Graham had cataloged it for me, but I could have sworn that I went to a Frankenstein comic book swap. You know, and, you, know you, you never have. And I, I know that because yeah, I've, t I've told you about them every single time I've been to one. Yes. No, I know. Uh, it might be that. But, but no, I have to think that I went to one that maybe you weren't at where it was me and Tim. And I, I remember mean, being in a big. Oh, no, maybe you did. Maybe it, you went before I, I knew about them. No, 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 no. Definitely. It was after. Anyway. We will we will drive everyone insane with this. Uh, the 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 point being, I know how many comic books you're capable of picking up when you pick them up on sale. And Chloe yeah. had tweeted well, something it. like, "It's a problem." Like when the comic books are a dollar or less each. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and two people who are genuinely nuts about comics, but also genuinely nuts about kind of the same eras of comics. Yes. Uh, hit one of these things. It gets expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I. Well, you it gets back, expensive, like, but come... even more, it gets huge. It gets bulky. Oh, that's it. You, yeah. you come back, like, you know, more than 100 comics. Well, that's it. It sounded like you guys, for whatever reason, I just have that classic Peanuts comic book image of the two of you, like, pulling a wagon with like com stacked high uh, with comic it, books all it, but spilling that would out not have been entirely inappropriate right um it's i mean the the best frankenstein one i went to was one before uh like a, a while ago mm -hmm. um and it was when i found a guy selling like a lot of justice leagues like the first run of justice league of america right and he was like i'm not even going to count them it looks like there's what 20 there so let's just call it like 15 dollars. and then when i got home and it was like there's like 40 <laughs> <laughs> which is great that is one of the things i love about the frankenstein comic swap every one of your stories is it's more about people who care enough about comics to want to make sure they get into good hands but don't really care enough about them to make sure that they quote unquote are paid what they're worth you know no, no, I mean? exactly. It is one hundred percent people who are just like, ah, that's good enough, right? Like, like you know, whatever. Right. You've, you're getting twenty. Let's just call it ten dollars, and you're like, okay, great, thanks. Right, right, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so 
Questions. I don't mean to cut Let's you off. Let's do the question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, do you want to do them in the order that I put them in that document? Yes, I, I do. With the thing of, did you see my email and added the one that we were looking for after the point where I thought we should add it? Uh, I know. Oh, but that's okay. okay. The one that you found. <laughs> oh, look, that's because it's literally just come in now. Oh, really? Well, that's weird because yeah. I sent it before uh, I called. You said so. it 20, you said it 27 minutes ago, it says. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. It's, okay. I tell you what, can you, can you copy and paste that in and I, I will read Dominic's first? Okay. So, a uh, friend of the podcast and galactic defender, Dominic L. Franco asks of a few questions. Um, first of a few. Since you are both at one time worked in retail comics, I wanted to ask you your opinion about why comics don't fully transition to the graphic novel format. Floppies made a lot of sense when they're relatively cheap and when the only market was the direct market or the newsstand. But now there are bookstores in Amazon, Comixology, and even those direct market stores that all do their business off of trades and graphic novels. When publishers are asking $9.99 for a giant special issue, is cost really the boogeyman some would make it out to be? Floppies also made a lot of sense when every floppy was a self-contained story. But now so many issues are just writing for the trade. Why not cut out the middle portion and just put out the trade? Is it because trades graphic novels cost so much up front for something you don't know anything about? How is that any different from the hundreds of hardcover novels that get put out and picked up every year? Are publishers worried about the upfront cost? Again, why is that so different from the book market and the publishers that work there? Every book publisher knows what authors are bankable in the short term and what authors will be a risk or a possible loss. Marvel knows what kind of numbers a Mark Wade book is going to post. DC knows that Jeff Johns is going to cover the cost of putting his work out. I just wanted to know your thoughts about transitioning fully to the trade format, arguments for and against. I apologize if this feels like a subject that was covered before. Um, uh, Graham, do you mind if I if I jump on that, or do you have yeah, parts no, that you please, want to? Please okay. do, because I I have a uh, a relatively straightforward response to it, and I'm wondering if yours is going to be the same. I okay. Uh, geez, you should probably do yours then, because mine, of course, because mine <laughs> um, will be it, straightforward, but 15 minutes longer. So let's. Uh, it is. It more or less is a financial decision. Uh, right. If you do single issues, then trades a you get to double dip right uh, and b single issues still sell significantly more than trades in that's the short right. term absolutely like, dramatically so that's right and so th if you go straight to trades they are going to lose a significant amount of money or not even lose money they're going to leave money on the table right it's not like they're not going to make the money back but they are going to leave money on the table and that's they're going right. to leave a lot of money on the table that's absolutely right and so that's really the biggest thing that's standing in the way secondarily though is the fact that i don't think creators in the american mainstream market necessarily know how to write for a trade like they write for the trade insofar as we can write six issues but i think if you went here's 144 pages to play with mm -hmm. i think a lot of graphic novel projects have shown that they get stuck in the weeds you know uh i will bounce off of that because i do think that actually uh one of the things that dominic mentions is he actually mentions uh jeff johns jeff johns wrote two direct uh to trade dc ogns he wrote batman yep. Earth 2 or Earth 1 or whatever the fuck they called it. One of those Batman Earth novels. Two volumes of that. Mm -hmm. It was clearly enough for DC. They made enough money, clearly, to do a second one. 
But the fact that they didn't do any more, like I think if well, it had it been huge, huge, they were working in volume three, right? Right, and they and they would have, and they may still, they may have, and and Johns may have decided, like you know what, volume three is going to be, it's it's going to be the three Jokers, and I'm going to move it to a different area instead, because there's a whole bunch of things where Batman existing on its own Earth is, you know, one thing, but so so DC has tried that and and has dipped their toes into it and much more so than marvel although marvel also kind of has oh it, no they did they did like uh there was avengers endless wartime there was rage of ultron right well rage no 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 absolutely and of course the most successful of them i think financially is still uh at least until diminishing turns returns hit in jim starlin's uh infinity effect um did very well. Like the first of his Infinity Direct OGNs, yeah, yeah, moved very moved a surprise a, a, a numbers that surprised Marvel um, positively. Yes, uh, DC put in the money, put in most of the effort, and um, what they saw generally was exactly what what you've said, Graham, and what Brian Hibbs uh, has hammered a, a lot in his various marketplace things, which is to say that OGNs come out of the gate at about 25 to 30,000 copies. Um, and that is, and then taper off very quickly after that. And while that is fine and not a bad chunk of money at twenty five ninety nine, the trades that are collected do about that well if not better and as graham points out all of that cost is underwritten in the in the floppies and because of the nature of the direct market every every comic book that hits the stand is is quote unquote profitable for the publisher because the customer in the direct market is the retailer the retailer and also most things aren't returnable Exactly. And that was my that was my point. The nature of the direct market is a non-returnable market. The retailers get a significant discount up front in return for buying them on a non-returnable basis. Ironically enough, the trades are part of what have destabilized what used to be some very solid math, because when this was um, presented uh, brought to the tape publisher's table back in the 70s at the, the birth of the direct market. The idea was a comic book store always had back issue bins and therefore any books that they purchased that didn't sell, they could then sell later. And so therefore it was worth the investment as long as there was enough of, it, of, enough of uh, a profit with what they were ordering. This was a great deal for the comics industry because the comics industry essentially had to print two copies of every comic that it sold. You know, one would sell, one got returned, and that would get pulped and destroyed. So if you look at even the the golden glory days where people talk about how much comic books were supposedly selling during the days of 7-Eleven, some of that is honestly people just misreading the published mail statements of how many were printed as opposed to how many were sold. Like there were times where 
really good, you know, books that were top sellers, like something like John Byrne's Fantastic Four, which we everyone remembers just flying off the stands, or even Claremont Byrne's X-Men, which were at the top of the markets, might have only, and I say, quote unquote, only selling 150,000 copies. Now, that's people are like that's 150,000 copies yeah, that, most like, co- that's to, in today's market that's astounding yes but and this is the weird thing we have had comics that have consistently sold at or over 100,000 you know again in a non-returnable market way now then the math starts getting gooey how many of those 100,000 copies that were sold to the direct market are actually being sold and how many of them were being purchased in terms of incentives and cover sketch cover variants and etc etc which is a whole nother thing one thing i do want to mention uh, for dominic that i think is important is um publishers book publishers put a lot of money up front they have there's huge investments uh, that they have to make and one of those investments is marketing and sort of in the same way that every issue of batman that comes out is profitable you know, is more than profitable. But anything that gets canceled, you know, with the exception of some of the stuff that we were hearing about things like Devil Dinosaur or certain low-selling Vertigo titles that were making it up in trade, by and large, the majority of the direct marketplace, those books, if they get printed and they get to the the retailers, it's because they solicited enough money to, quote-unquote, make their money back. There's a whole that's that's definitely big to talk. Marvel, DC, totally different split for something like Image. Um, so they are already profitable. So the trade marketplace is essentially frosting on a cake. It's relatively the costs to package up everything that has already been bought and paid for in terms of your costs to your creatives and editorial and everything. The cost of putting that into a trade is very minimal from a production standpoint. And at that point, the the most money that you're spending is either in printing and or in storage of the copies once you have them. They, you do not, the direct market does not have to, quote unquote, market Batman trades the same way that you would that the book marketplace would have to in part because someone could say Batman more or less gets advertised every time you walk into the comic book store in part because there's a new issue in there. Like I don't think, I don't know if anyone in the big two genuinely makes this argument, but I think that they're part of the reason why the big two are traditionally very terrible and kind of foot foot draggy about spending money on marketing is that that is an almost no overhead area for them once you do start moving into the area of marketing beyond here's what's happening at at, you know here's your comic-con booth here's what you're going to be saying at uh um comics pro here's what you're going to be putting in your trades at blah 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 like you know DC and Marvel will just about um, uh, rupture a, a groin muscle hollering about putting a fucking Facebook ad in, which when you look at the cost that book publishers actually have to do for marketing and what they do is is nothing. Now, 
so all of which is to say the floppy is incredibly economically sleek um, and efficient for the marketplace that it's in. The marketplace is where everyone starts wringing their hands. How good is it at at doing outreach and the and and being able to bring in new people and not being insular? And the problem is, yeah, all of that is very very poor. And which is, but the direct market as it was set up is an incredibly efficient machine. Um that unfortunately is so efficient there's not always uh excuse me it allows a lot of um non-forward thinking to flourish for long periods of time in part because they don't have to it almost runs too well yeah yeah i some something to sort of add on to this before we move on is there's also things like the you know dc has uh successful mm -hmm. ya middle grade graphic novel yes like publishing program which is ogn's it yeah. is original content going straight to graphic novel um not all of them do superman smashes the clan came out in in single issues first that's right uh, supergirl being super came out in single issues first and i'm really curious how much of the the middle grade publishing plan is straight to the graphic novel because they think there's no audience in the direct market Right, and then you get like a Mariko Tamaki book or a Jin Yang book, and they're like, "Oh no, they've they've got enough of a name that maybe we can sell this and and have it act as a loss leader." Right, and and I I would say that there's actually I, I think that's a, a if nothing else um, a pretty viable strategy. And considering I bought Superman Smashes the Clan uh, in individual issues, I, I think there's I think there's something to that. So uh, why don't you read uh, question number two? I will. Why does Superman not seem to work anymore in pop culture at large? Batman is thought of as so cool, has multiple cartoons and multiple movies that have worked and reworked his concept. Superman is thought of as everyone's dad, but that's just shorthand for saying he's old-fashioned and carny. He's put into films that play up the fact that he's an alien, not one of us, or make him more violent and less heroic in the try-and-save-as-many-people-as-possible sense, we can't fight here, the people! Even in comics, different attempts are made to chip away at him to give Mangster pathos. Why can he not seem to? Why can he not seem to work as the inspirational figure he's meant to be? Why is this ethic of wanting to do good simply for the sake of doing good because it is the right thing? Sneered at. Did we let Superman down, or was he always just something for children? Mm. I ask this as a Superman enthusiast, and I'm just curious as to what kind of discussion this may stir. Mm. Um, as someone else who is a Superman enthusiast, I'm really interested in what you have to say, Jeff. Oh, gosh, wow, that was such a beautiful handoff. I'm like, oh, good, he's going to dig into it. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, I will say, I'll keep it somewhat brief, I was reading uh, on Hoopla, Superboy, A Celebration of 50 Years, and I um, am not very far into it. In fact, well, actually, maybe I'm two-thirds through. I just got through, there was the, the Silver Age Superboy issues, there were the Superboy and Legion of Superhero issues, and now it looks like they are moving into the, oh, this is great, Superboy Prime, this is what you guys are here for, right, uh, issues that, that I have not started yet. And, um, like, some of those stories in there are fucking great. And the story where Superboy meets Lex Luthor is still fucking genius. It's Jerry Siegel and, oh, um... So a couple of couple of things from that. One is part of why 
the silver why I feel like super Superboy may arguably work better as Superman than Superman in a way and um S- Batman has uh I I would posit that Batman is easier to hide his dramatically inert nature easier than Superman can essentially Batman by by dint of having enough contradictions in it including the hero anti-hero including the is he a psychopath is he a saint kind of thing like there's a lot of narrative feints that you can do that more or less keep you from like I said, realizing that you're kind of more or less reading the same story over and over again. It helps, of course, that he's got like a huge rogues gallery of people. Superman, as I think you point out, has a, isn't it, works best or resonates for a lot of us on a couple of different levels. For most people, I think, who are Superman fans, it has to do with him as an inspirational figure. How you solve a problem like Maria, which is to say someone who has their shit figured out. Um, One thing that I'm really grateful for about us doing Drock and reading, uh, you know, last 12 years of Judge Dredd in in a relatively short go is that that I realize that you can have characters that are dramatically inert or appear to be by having by progressing so slowly it's almost as if they're not progressing at all if you're not paying attention and in order to do that you have to have a lot of tools in your toolbox and i think unfortunately one of the things that is hard about superman is in the Silver Age, which is this area that I resonate that resonates really strongly with me, weirdly after I entered adulthood and far into it, um, it is that uh, by all accounts a horrible son of a bitch, Mark Weisinger really um, helping guide, shape, and open up the Superman mythos in a lot of ways that may or may not seem ridiculous. But even Superman picked up things like Kryptonite and Jimmy Olsen from the radio shows. One of my theories that I've thrown here through my 300 episodes of Blabity Blab is having characters in uh, having characters have their own TV shows, radio shows, whether it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or anything that cross pollination brings more things to the table the more you expand that mythos by just the nature of changing the medium the more that you get tools to play with that also end up being like road tested like there's a reason why jimmy olsen would work at that particular time and then maybe people figure out how and what they do so all of which is to say i feel that part of the problem with superman is is that um uh, these days, as much as I enjoy what Brian Bendis does on a page-by-page basis, I get frustrated at just how sloppy he is as a genuine storyteller. And 
Um, I think I think if that was not the case, if you had like a Brian Bendis who is really on his game, I think it, I think Superman, maybe more people would be more excited by Superman. I also think that Superman has been trapped in a loop of not only is DC rebooted its universe um, multiple times, but I would say, and I, I could be wrong, that Superman has been rebooted multiple times within those reboots, and never more so than now. So I think... Yes. So Superman is rebooted, like, within six months of Rebirth starting. Yeah, exactly. And so there is, um, I think, part of the problem with him and with certain other characters is nobody's really stepping onto the books being additive in any way for the most part. Nobody's like, oh, here's what someone did before. Here's how I'm going to take this. It's going to be literally someone like Brian Bendis being like, I'm doing the biggest Superman story ever. And it's, you know, essentially a story that was told by Pete Tomasi just, what, 18 months earlier, right? Yeah. Like, no, no well, one cares enough to make all the pieces fit. Okay, so I'm going to agree with you and disagree with you. Okay. Um, because I think that Bendis is actually additive. Bendis took a lot from the run that he inherited. Yes. Jarrell still being around. That's right. Um, Jonathan, as I, like, what do you do with Jonathan? Mm-hmm. And and built on it, uh, especially in the, the main Superman book. You mm-hmm. know, actually, comics was off doing its own thing, but in Superman, like the first, you know, eighteen issues, the first eighteen months is basically tying up the Jarrell plotline. Oh, yeah, and he did it fabulously. Sorry, no, no, no. I know, that's beside your point. That's beside your point, so keep keep going. He is being active. He's not... Absolutely, absolutely. At the same time, he is literally, like you said, doing the story that, like, Greg Pak, Jin Yang were doing, you know, four years earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, by Superman reveals his secret identity. That's 100% true. Mm -hmm. Um, The other part where I'm going to agree with you is... I've been rereading like '80s Superman, mm-hmm. recently. Um, like the the initial like Stern Ordway. Okay, I was going to say pre burn or post burn. So you mean no post burn immediately yeah. post burn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's amazing to see what still works from there, and what still works from there is that basically the the world building. The yes. soap opera of it. Yep, yep. And soap opera of it works in large part because even when they do like the big swings, you know, mm-hmm. Death of Superman, Death of Clark Kent, like right. 20 issues later. Wow. Um, between those two things, they basically accept that Superman doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Soap opera happens to everyone around exactly, him. Exactly, exactly. And they manage to build that up and they manage to be like, you actually do fucking – are Perry and Alice going to adopt – this kid yes you know you do care what's happening with jimmy you do care what's happening with fucking bibble yeah adventures of superman was the last point where i felt emotionally invested in in a superman book honestly emotionally and it it really works Mm -hmm. right they Mm -hmm. they really manage to lean into it and what's amazing is they keep that going for a long time yeah it does begin to run out of steam before they're off the books that's Mm -hmm. true Mm -hmm. but by that point they've been doing it for like like almost 10 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and it's worked for the majority of that time that's right which is genuinely impressive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so i think the uh, 
you know, to answer Dominic's questions directly from from this Superman enthusiast's point of view, um, I think that there is a tendency to think that Superman is naive or childish if you just directly go at it, he's a good guy doing good things because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a lot of creators nervous, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes a lot of people second-guess Superman. Like, one of the most popular, most successful Superman runs in recent memories, All-Star Superman, which is, like, jettisoning all the, you know, postmodern readings. And it's what? just like, Superman's good. So this is actually my point, Graham, or my question for you. Because, the, for me, by far, the most successful part of Bendis' Superman is he does the same thing, right? Like, I would maintain that the nervous, what makes creators nervous isn't so much the idea of, like, how do I, um, how do I come up with a take on Superman that doesn't seem corny, rather than... Um, you know what I mean? Ra- rather than Superman, it, the character is corny, which maybe they think. But like Morrison and Bendis are guys who I think are nine. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that two guys who do very, very good work on Superman are guys who are 900 pound gorillas as far mm-hmm. as they're able to sit wherever they want. Or someone, uh, frankly, I think Gene Yang Superman is fantastic as well yes. and yeah. is similarly rooted in a, a concept of essential goodness. Um, and Gene himself is also a guy who doesn't necessarily have to worry, It doesn't care about where his next paycheck is coming from in the direct marketplace. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so I do think that both of, so I think there's something actually to be said that I feel like it's more that a, I think the creators flinch and B, I honestly do think based on reaction to things like Christopher Reeve, Superman, that, that the public, that the non-reading comic public is more a fan of of Superman as that figure. Like I yes. would be a little bit closer to say that the if that the 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 we that let Superman down is um, the direct marketplace creators and to an extent the audience uh, much more so than maybe the other way around. Yeah, it, it, I think that there is. I think there is definitely an audience for Superman as Superman, like the platonic ideal of Superman. Right. And I think that everyone who tries to basically outthink it right. is 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 missing something, to be honest. Right. You know, like one of the things we've talked about this before, one of the things I like about Ben's Superman so much is that it's Superman. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 not trying to be postmodern. Right. You know, it's just like here's this guy who's showing up to do the right thing. Right. The end. You know, I never like the Bendis comes in all around the edges of that one hundred percent. Yeah. But but that part of it is, oh. is, is very, very simple. It's and, very basic. Very simple, and it is very, very effective. It's usually the lar- a lot of the larger are stuff that is. But the nuts and bolts on the page, of the page, def- I definitely agree with you. I think at the re- – I don't want to take up too much time, so I think maybe it will be a thing that we can uh, return to, is I do think, however, that there is a good case to be made that – um, one thing that is very hard is that America is a more openly 
self-centered place uh, than it used to be even in a weird time, even back in the 80s, you know? No, I agree. I agree. And so I do think that there is a way in which it is very, it would be very difficult. On the one hand, that I think that means that there is a deep longing for selflessness to be seen in our public pop culture, but it is never going to be the slam dunk that Batman, who very, very much fits it. I mean, Batman's so mutable, he can fit into the zeitgeist in a lot of ways, you know, and or as Frank Miller says, he's just such a strong concept. You kind of can't break him. Like you can do yeah, goofy, and, and you I can think, do serious. I think, I think the idea that you can just like can continue to redo yeah. Batman is is the is the strength of Batman. Yeah, absolutely. Now, whether or not that strength is inherent to the character or just because of him that character flipping back and forth between different media, I should have said flitting for the appropriate bat-like metaphor, but flitting back and forth between the popular media is maybe that's part of what made him so malleable. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, God, this is really funny. Before Dominic's question came in, one of the like big moments that I had after reading that Superman's friend, Superboy's pal, Lex Luthor, is I was like, God damn, I wish they would redo Smallville now. Like I would love to do a Smallville redo because the first, the, what they what they ended up with was a whole other thing and bless them. But for me, there was a huge, great thing about two best friends who are going to end up being great enemies and you know it. And yet, and, and then you build the teen soap opera with it, with superpowers, you know, unfortunately the Smallville people also were working kind of like, how do we do the Buffy template, but worse? And then things yes, went yeah. wrong. No, no, Smallville, the I, basic idea of Smallville is great. Is right? great. It's is just that great. it's not, the execution yeah. is not great. No, 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 no. But in my brain, there's a version that's still using that peripheral song yet to be sung as its theme song for the opening lyrics and just, and just killing us every week. And honestly, I think that sort of thing helps make the characters more malleable by being able to, to just the, the malleability in which we think of them makes it easier to, for them to be things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Third question from Dominic, you know, I've tried to solicit from both of you, wait, what the soundtrack. Now I want to ask about, wait, what the movie Jeff, in your opinion, who plays you and who plays Graham? Graham, same question. I'm very upset okay, wait, that you saw wait, my answers wait. already, Graham. But Here's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Jeff put the answers in the Google Doc that uh, had the questions. And I saw them earlier on today. And I've got to tell you, Jeff, you're fucking nuts. <laughs> Jeff, you're fucking nuts. In particular, the painfully accurate <laughs> one had me laughing like a fucking drain. Oh, uh, well, that's a shame because I think... I mean, on the one hand, I'm I'm glad to hear it, but I was sort of like, I thought that this would be a fun one to actually um, surprise on people. So yes, I will give my answers and then we'll see what Graham came up with. So I gave three answers. The Hollywood inaccurate answer, the Hollywood accurate answer, and the painfully accurate answer. So the Hollywood inaccurate 
uh, wait, what the movie where they are trying to clearly make the most successful hit that they can. Uh, I am played by Bill Hader and Graham is played by Richard Madden. Another Scott, (laughs) the Hollywood accurate version, which is to say someone who insists that they care about the material has listened to us all and is trying to make the sort of hit that is going to appeal come, uh, uh, awards time is me being played by Stephen Root uh, and Graham being played by Mark Strong. Honestly, Mark Strong is I still, I think, a good pick. And then there's the painfully accurate, which is somebody who really, really, really is a fan that somehow managed to finagle money out of this, some this, poor this is, somebody. This is my favorite because your painfully accurate is so hilariously inaccurate. I disagree. Me... <laughs> Randy Quaid, and Graham, Jason Statham. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Someone on Twitter actually had said to me um, while I was assembling this list, uh, before uh, I assembled this list, someone was like, I went to Randy Quaid's Twitter page and it was like being, it was like the Jeff Lester of the antimatter universe. Uh, And he's like, and I mean that in a good way because Jeff is wonderful and great. So while I was compiling the list of my choices, <laughs> I kept asking Edie, like, who should I be? Who should Graham be? Who should I be? Who should Graham be? And we kind of went around and around. And I kept saying for me, Randy Quaid. And she's like, Randy Quaid? No. no what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, Randy Quaid. And she's like, Dennis Quaid's older brother? Isn't he like 70 years old? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, no, that's no. And then I showed her a picture of him that he posted on Twitter. And she was like, oh, oh. <laughs> So, Jeff, I've got to tell you, I cannot come up with one for myself. Cannot. Um, However, this is one that Chloe had an idea for. Okay. And Chloe's idea for you literally ruined any idea I could have of coming up with one for myself. Oh, no. Shit. Okay. This is amazing. I'm worried. Jeff Bridges. Ah! Jeff Bridges from The Big Lebowski. That, you know what? Edie also said that. That was going to be my choice before Stephen Root. Oh, my God. Yeah. We were both like Big Lebowski, Jeff Bridges. Um, yes. And then I pivoted and went with Stephen Root because he's been doing some amazing work. So, wow. Wow. Well, thank you. That's great. But what did what did she have for you? What did She must have said something for you that uh, you were Here's the like, thing she did, and I honestly not. don't remember it. Really? She oh. was She was really taken with Mark Strong, though. She oh, was good. like, Mark She's Strong's up. actually a good one. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought so too. Yeah. Uh, but no, she came up with another that I honestly don't remember. But let's let's just say with let's just go with Mark Strong. What, she at, also didn't know who Richard Madden was, which is my favorite thing. Because I was like, remember Rocket Man? It's the shitty boyfriend of Elton John's. And she was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful that you guys uh, had to go there as opposed to Game of Thrones. And uh, what did I want to say? Um, at one point, uh, both Edie and I battered around Stanley Tucci for you as well. Oh, but... shit. That's who she came up with for me. I knew it. I was going to guess. I was going to say she was like, I, I'm... since she got Jeff Bridges. So Chloe basically cast That's what hilarious. was my original Hollywood accurate version. That's really funny. Yeah. 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 So and um, then I changed those up. She also said if I was going Hollywood inaccurate, uh, I should be Sean Connery. <laughs> Her, oh. Or Billy Connolly, and her thinking really was, they're both Scottish, and they both have beards. That's great. Those are both good. I mean, 
I, Richard Madden was the was of course the 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 joke version of that in that he's also Scottish. But yeah, you as Sean Connery, that would be fabulous. Um, okay, Kevin Donlin, and then we should we're gonna have to jump in like seven minutes. But let's at least do the question for Kevin, and yes. then we we can do the answer when we come back. Uh, so in the last Q&A, episode 273, I'd asked a question that got pushed because it was a bit deeper than time allowed. It, I'm still curious about your thoughts, especially with how the world has gone slightly more sideways since then. If you were to recommend an introduction to comics to different age levels, what would you recommend? I put a bunch of age brackets in the question last time, but how about 10 and under, 11 to 15, 16 to 20, 21 to 30, and 31 plus? I know it's kind of a hard question since you don't know anything about the target audience other than age, but I think you're up to the challenge. Right. Um, and you're saying, wait, how long have we been talking? It's, oh yeah, it's an hour like, too. like seven minutes before things go wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, do it quick is what I'm saying. Well, see, and that was it. Cause I feel like last time he answered this. All right, let me give this a try. And I think it might be easier since way back in two, seven, three or so. Um, uh, uh, ages 10 and under. Um, there's a ton of great books from first, second, from uh, No Brow, including the Nightlight books that I would suggest, um, Nimona, uh, which is first, second. Um, DC has a ton of really great original graphic novels out now. Um, friend of the podcast, uh, Sarah Kuhn, wrote Shadow of the Batgirl, which I read and I thought was a really great read um, as as someone who likes Cassandra Cain. Uh, Batgirl. It's an attempt to take uh, do do uh, yeah a sort of a Cassandra Kane Batgirl in a in a YA universe that makes a ton of sense. Um, the Amulet books uh, are were huge for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I think Bone has a tendency I was, I was to work say, like I a think, motherfucker. I think Bone mm-hmm. is is fucking great. For, for uh, yeah. that age group. Yeah. I feel sometimes that for whatever reasons, I think because cartooning styles are different, uh, that the Uncle's, Carl Barks's Uncle Scrooge books are f- uh, fabulous. Kind of like Urge's Tintin, I feel like they can sometimes be a little too dense for kids nowadays weirdly like yeah, i feel like weirdly kids enough, want... i bump them to like 11 to 15 i think right? so too I, I think tintin or something is a great book for 11 to 15 year olds yeah 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 and i think that there is something about the density of the text there's um bill watterson's calvin and Hobbes. uh i think there's a lot of comic strips i think lynn johnston for better or for worse has a proven track record with female cartoonists now as being hugely influential and are pretty ageless as humorous slice of life uh, comic telling books that I think work for 10 and under 11. Uh, Yes. I want to say very quickly, the ones you didn't mention is 10 and under. I really drastically cannot recommend Luke Pearson's Hilda enough. Mm, Yes. I think Hilda books are amazing. And also if you are like actively trying to get, particular kids as opposed to theoretical kids into it yeah they might have already seen hills on netflix that is true that is and true. so they've already kind of got that that sort of entry point in but i think the hilda books are fucking amazing i i gave i gave the first two hilda books to my niece um but but maybe six months before covid and i still haven't found out what she thought but i know that for example she loves she loved uh nightlight 
uh, and Annihilate is great. Yeah, yeah. I actually I, I love those two books as well. Yeah. So uh, eleven to fifteen, sixteen to twenty is hard for me to split because I, I find it. I don't necessarily know. Like my my niece June is like ten, and her parents are showing her showed her the Terminator. I just found out, and <laughs> and part of me was like, is that is that really appropriate for a ten year old? Like, uh, yeah, but like kids are, kids are like our idea of kids and kids are different things right, right. what we were like oh that's not suitable for like a 10 year old you know they're already reading you know stuff for 15 year olds well so okay but and this is this is where i might trip myself up is for myself when i was 11 to 15 i was reading i was reading stuff that was for adults I th- I was reading um, non-pictorial literature that was for adults, stuff that may or may not be considered "quote unquote" extreme, but there's no pictures. From eleven to fifteen, I particularly because of my age being you know older than you, I was reading Marvel comics that were being written more or less for college readers, yeah. but written at a level that were ex- uh, accessible for. Um, you know, 13, 14 year olds. So Starlin's Jim Starlin's Warlock is a beloved memory. Don McGregor's jungle action, Black Panther, you know, Panther's Rage, stuff like that, that people who were, you know, in their late teens, early twenties were reading. And it felt incredibly um, just um, uh, subversive. And honestly, that's one of the things that I think is hard about recommended reading groups is great when you get from 10 on under but 11 from 11 to 15 on it gets really rough because part of the joy i think of of reading when you're like between the ages of 11 to 15 is figuring out where your boundaries are and and part of the joy of that is moving into the areas where people you get the sense people don't want you to go you know, like I can't think of a in a way and things are different now, you know, parents and their children are friends now and buddies in ways that they were not when I was a kid. Right. So there was sure, a lot yeah, of like, yeah. don't look at that. That's bad. It's wrong. You know, and you're and like, well, like, of course, I'm going to look at it. Right. Exactly. Because there was kind of this thing of you got the sense that what they said that they were worried about was not necessarily what they were worried about. Now that that kids and parents sort of have um, a lot more trust and a lot more closeness that goes longer and the whole teen thing is very different. So it's harder for me, but I would say 11 through 15, like just start throwing Grant Morrison stuff at him, you know, all ages Grant Morrison, like Grant Mor- the stuff that Grant Morrison is doing in the DC universe is in theory, all ages appropriate enough, but it's really subversive. And then if they take to it, then over the age of 16, they can do things like the invisibles and the filth and other things that, that, that would be much more kind of like shocking. But I mean, 11 to 15, I'm like, if they're into superheroes, let them read superheroes. If they're into manga, let them read manga. I mean, the problem, the great thing is that, comics and this will come back in a later answer comics are so much wider than they were i think even when graham was a kid 
and definitely oh, more than when I was, you know, um, you know, nine, eight, nine years before that. So part of me is like, and it would be really great. And because I'm sort of in touch, but out of touch, I have manga that I'm like, oh yeah, definitely. You know, they've, they've got to read Pluto, you know, but if that's an 11 to 15 or a 16 to 20. No, that's just it. It is. It's the, however, uh, honestly, however good a reader they are and wherever they individually are at. Right. Because it really is like, that's a very, not arbitrary, but like the, the lines blur right. at those, those ages, like pretty dramatically, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, like for 11 to 20, I'd be like, well, maybe they'll like Squirrel Girl. Right. And for some kids, Squirrel Girl is going to seem like a little kid's comic. And for others, it's going to be exactly what they want to read. Right. You know, and others are going to be like, well, you know, Chip Zdarsky's uh, Jughead, which I think is fucking great. Mm-hmm. But again, it's 100% not for, for certain age groups. It could be Morrison. It could be, right. you know, it could be superheroes. It could, you know, someone might get a lot out of, you know, uh, you know, Scott Snyder's Justice League. Someone might get a lot out of Game and Sandman. Right. You know, yeah, absolutely, it, it, it is very, very blurry at that age. Yeah. And the nice thing about, especially, I'd say mid to late teens, is there is so much content that I think is great for that age group. Yeah, because as you said, it is a age group that wants to read slightly older, mm-hmm. and so the world is their fucking oyster for that. Yeah, I think so too. I should mention because uh, I didn't, um, at least for the under tens, uh, Akira Toriyama. Um, Dr. Slump is just a great uh, – in fact, I think that um, the seven-year-old in your household might really appreciate Dr. Slump a lot if they haven't tried reading it because it's basically – it's literally um, super goofy robots and poop on stick jokes, you know. And then Toriyama then goes on to do Dragon Ball, which then ends up like has eaten the brains of so many kids, you know – between the ages of like eight and 15. And then, and then, you but know, Gap, again, you the two comics that the kids in this house, the seven year old in this house has loved more than anything else. Sure. Cheese sweet home. Yes. And Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. 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 Which, so honestly, which like, utterly obsessed him. Yeah. I honestly do think that you guys should, should find a Dr. Slump. And see, yeah, yeah, see if no, that goes. Because slump is great. Cheese Sweet Home, yeah, absolutely. You did mention that. That makes sense. And and honestly, you've also mentioned with the way that um, uh, he, he like just got into Scott Pilgrim and was like in it. Yeah, but like everything about Scott Pilgrim, he loved. He absolutely loved. Even though I was like, this feels too old for him. It does, but it is <laughs> the miracle of O'Malley's stuff. Is it's it's super super discreet about the stuff that's adult. You know, and yeah. and and also just very, very gentle about the adult stuff. So it's like, yeah, he's never going to be able to read seconds, but I can see or, or you know, it's seven, but I can see him reading Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Under the age of 10, man, I got to tell you that DC Silver, basically for me, the split is under the age of 10, as much DC Silver Age as you can give them over the age of 10, as much Marvel uh, Bronze Age stuff as you can give them. I'm like, I don't Again, think you can want old stuff because that's the thing. Right. Like some kids just don't. Oh, the other thing that, that the seven year old really likes, um, Kirby. Uh, as in Jack or as, as in, in the Jack. Nintendo character? Really? No, as yeah, no, Jack. no, I totally believe that. Right? I totally believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the things that is great about Kirby is 
the fact that there was an entire generation of, even as the people at Marvel were mocking Jack Kirby for Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man and and the Eternals, an entire generation that grew up that was like, this is the shit. And and I, and my my younger brothers like read the shit out of that Kirby stuff. And I would be like, eh, I'm not into it. While like reading Machine Man number four with the introduction of 10-4 for like the fifth fucking time, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, it just, it it is, I totally believe it because Kirby, Kirby, Kirby has it, you know what I mean? Like he, well, it's just, it's so inventive and like runs on such uh momentum. Well, that's it. It's it's momentum. It is always, particularly in in you know everything from the Age of Marvel comics on, is um, super super, and especially in the seventies, super readable. Like not readable, but like attention grabbing. You know, his shit grabs your attention. Like it's all of that pacing stuff. Those choices that he made, like. You I, like part of me is like you're gonna fucking keep turning the pages on a devil dinosaur comic book because and mm-hmm. each page is just going to have literally something leaping at you and on top of which because he is moving he knew what he wanted as far as inkers went and also and that is with something that that didn't redraw him but also did have stronger bolder lines to it you know that yeah, really yeah. backed up his blacks the way mm-hmm. that someone like Sinnott did and the way that someone like Coletta tended to hugely minimize. So Yeah, but well, like when Royer comes on, it's just that's that's just, just golden. Yeah. Um twenty one to thirty. Let like like let's Whew. let's speed through. Right. Twenty one uh, to thirty. Um, um yeah. I, I I don't know. Right. Yeah, I kind of know what you mean. I kind of have that same thing of like everyone's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Like, no, it, it's it's true. Like twenty one thirty, I don't know, but like when you say thirty one over, I'm like honestly like something like Tom King's uh, Mister Miracle, or right, like Kevin Hisenga, his Klinganji stuff. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I think works sort of when you're over thirty. Right. Uh, oh, you know, twenty one thirty. Um, uh, Nick Abadzis is Hugo Tate. Oh, interesting. You know what I was going to say, which I think is fucking great for 21 to 30, is, uh, is it, oh shit, uh, what's his name? Fuck me. Um, cause it was, he did it under a pseudonym, which threw me off. You know, um, Young Francis by, uh, Justin Lin, is that? No, oh, damn it, Justin Lin did the Fast and the Furious characters. Nick Hartley, um, Francis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the I'm looking up Young Francis the, right now. Young it, Francis it, is apparently a band. Um who is it that's uh Francis Lim? Oh, it's 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 um it's Popat's guy. Yes, Popat's guy. Exactly. Um, um, uh, uh, the collection shit. of his stuff. Hold on, I'm looking yes. at Popat's Oh god. Uh Ethan Riley. Ethan Riley. Riley, yeah, yeah. Ethan Riley and and of course did he did he do the collection under his own name? No, he finally? did. Yeah, Hartley Lynn. Yeah. Hartley Lynn. Thank you. I did. I say Lynn Hartley at some point. I probably did. didn't get close. Okay. So yes, Hartley Lynn's. Um, uh, yeah. That. What did? What the hell did it get collected as? Young Francis. Young Francis. I was right. God damn it. No, you are right. You are ah! right. 
Ah, okay. Yes, Young Francis, I think, is a fabulous fucking book for 21 uh, to 30 year olds. I think Scott Pilgrim yes. is a terrific goddamn book for 21 uh, to 30 Eddie year olds. Alec. Eddie well. Campbell's Alec is a f- tremendous book from 21 to 30 as well. A uh, little hard to actually start recommending because uh, the, the if, if you can start putting aside your, your fave is problematic problems. Um, eh, shit. And my Paul Pope. Paul Pope's stuff, I think, is actually um, pretty good for 21 to 30 year olds. Oh, yeah, something like 100%, I think, would be really good. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Paul Pope, uh, 21 to 30. 21 to... Oh, uh, honestly, anything Lisa Hannawalt. Yeah, Lisa Hannawalt stuff. Um, Lisa, I, I told you about her, like, I Want You, which is the collection of mini comics that's coming out. Yes. Is so fucking good. Like, th- that book in particular, I would right. put in there. Right. Um, you know, I think. Kate Beaton stuff as like a uh, as sort of as funny times, but you know she's been working on a graphic novel about her time working in the the Canadian tar sands industry, and I think that is going to be fucking phenomenal. Um, I cannot I cannot wait for that. Uh, as long as we're on the Pizza Island people, Julia Wirtz's uh, fart party stuff I think is great. Um, there's a lot of stuff that used to resonate for people in the 21 to 30 group that was of its time that I can't see resonating in the same way. I can't like, which is good and bad. Like, I think that for example, people just can't 21 to 30 year olds don't eat up Peter Baggs hate comics the way they used to, because they're just, it's just not the same. Right. You know, whereas I think that actually, um, arguably from 16 plus but maybe ideally 21 to 30 dan claus's work uh charles burns's work uh the hernandez brothers work oh shit yes yeah the hernandez brothers work definitely 100 fucking percent yes yeah so i think i think all of that stuff i mean in part of me oh god you know what i should have said for 11 15 as well what um my favorite thing is monsters oh you know i still haven't read that I can't believe I still haven't read that. Um, but I believe it. I believe it. God, that looks so good. I can't, it's, you know, I have to say out of all this stuff where I'm like, oh, I love digital. I love digital. I know I can 100% guarantee that if I had had bought that copy, that book in print, I would have read it by now. Because every time I pick it up in the store, I'm just like, oh, this is gorgeous. I, honestly, having read a PDF and then having read a print version, mm-hmm. it works in print so much better. I, I totally believe it. I totally believe it for a very variety of reasons. Yeah, maybe maybe next payday, maybe I'll get myself an actual hard copy of that. Um, so, so that's 21 to 30. I think there's a lot more there. There's also going to be some stuff that's going to be coming up. Uh, for the overlap that I'm not going to mention now that I'm saving for later answers. Oh about... yeah, yeah, yes. There's there's another question later on. That, yeah, that, at least that is, that is going to uh, overlap with this yeah. fairly significantly, actually. Yeah, uh, yes, but I was actually thinking of one of the other ones that doesn't quite as much as directly. Oh, I would say this also. That's also sort of like I don't know. There's also a lot of genre comics that that are hard to hit from a particular age. But like for me, a lot of people know I like Brubaker, what Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, the crime comics, I think would be enjoyable, great reads for anyone into genre fiction between the ages of 21 and 30, 16 on up, 
as well. But I feel like 21 to 30 is actually a pretty good sweet spot for some uh, a lot of the stories that they're telling. Well, honestly, I'm like, oh, no, that's 31 plus. I, I think Brubaker and, and Phillips skew older, honestly, as much as anything because of their interests and because of the way they tell stories. That, you know, that could be. That could be. I, I can I can see that. But yeah, somewhere somewhere in there. I 20, think that twenty one to thirty I might also throw in sex criminals. Oh, actually, yeah. I, I would say that twenty one to thirty is sex criminals is a good good catch. I would also say saga is somewhere in the twenty one to thirty age on up, you know? Like I can see where thirty one plus it's kind of a thing, but I get the sense that a lot of people in your twenties. I mean, I say that with a huge asterisk, which is Sokka is not complete, and therefore exactly. It's really I was going to say, so, to, like, it's, yeah. it is hard to be like, mm, well, Saga, because you're like, uh, would be great if we finished it, We'd right? Know. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, thirty-one plus. Before we move on, Black Kiss by Howard Chaykin, and an essential. <laughs> We've talked about our love of the Black Kiss before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's actually a good question and one that I'm sort of like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm sort of yeah, like, I don't I'm know. I'm spending time on it. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, we have to move through. We have to rush on for real. Okay. One thing I do want to put as an addendum, and I will mention it for people, there is an even better take on me, I think, hard to believe than, uh, uh, Randy Quaid. If you go to, um, uh, the show notes at Wait What Podcast, I came up someone <laughs> I saw I saw a YouTube video where I was like, "Oh my god, this embodies me. This is this is the very epitome of the I feel seen comment in in not in a positive way, of course." So, I, did you, you find you, one? No, you told me to look for one. Honestly, I can't think of one. I will put it to the brain trust and hopefully someone will come up with something for me. Okay. But I will have something for you tomorrow because oh. i i don't know i don't look at like i'm so tempted to send like scooter from the muppets do it do it because <laughs> believe me when you see this video um which i will probably send you after the episode so you know i think everyone who has ever listened to this podcast will see that sketch and be like holy shit that is creepy beyond all belief so I'm- but yeah. Jeff, we've got to get through the question. Agreed. Agreed. I just had to throw that in there. So let's say that we got Kevin Donlin done. Kevin, thank you for your patience for re-throwing that back at us. It took us forever to find the answer. Um, Michael Laughlin, uh, right? Yes. Yes, go. Okay. Uh, he writes, on the last episode, you discussed the recent Lois Lane miniseries and Superman explaining why he wouldn't help immigrants imprisoned by the government was weak and didn't fit his character. I've long maintained that bringing in too many real world elements breaks big two superheroes. Do you agree? Should we see superheroes solve real world problems in the pages of their comics or does that cheapen real world problems? Is it better to see superheroes deal with an analog to the real world problem, e.g. President Universo's detaining undocumented Durlons on Tacron Galtos and using the silence police to attack science police to attack protesters? It's up to the Legion of Superheroes to freely unjustly imprison Durlins, but can Element Lad convince Officer Aaron to stand up to his fellow officers? And then parentheses, why yes, I have been reading a lot of Legion lately. How did you know? Not counting out-of-continuity alternate reality series like Watchmen or Squadron Supreme, can you think of a big two superhero comic that addressed real-world concerns that was exceptionally good? Um, yes and no. Okay. 
Um, we have already talked about the Superman storyline where he reveals his, his secret identity yeah. back in the New 52 days. Uh, Greg Pak and Aaron Cooter had an action comics run that is, without calling it Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. it's sort of adjacent to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think was actually really great. Mm-hmm. Um, it completely falls apart at the end because it turns out that like the corrupt cops who are being up on everyone is like the result of, you know, a magic villain or something like that. Right. But but there is a portion where Superman basically stands with protesters against the cops and the cops just beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Sounds great. I, honestly, um, I feel I've slept on that. I, I need to pick that up, those traits. Basically, and this is like Superman, like, I don't know if you remember, like his identity got revealed, but also he got kind of depowered at the same time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and um, then went, kind of went back towards the t-shirt and jeans Superman yes, yes. Of, of Morrison. Um, yeah. And so it's it's that Superman basically showing up and like standing with protesters and the cops are like, you're like, well, fuck you then. And they fire tear gas and just attack the protesters mm-hmm. who aren't doing anything. Hmm. Wow, uh, you live right? in that's, Portland. That's and, great. Yeah, that right. must not like, ring any really bells. Uh-huh. But like I said, yeah, um, it the problem is uh, that it then turns into a magic thing, you know? Right. So, right. So to 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 take the baton here, I do agree, Michael. I do think that real too many real world elements break big two superheroes, and I and I think that I and sadly I do not think that superheroes solving real world problems. Um, like part of me is, and this is the part where I'm a weird comics nerd. Like part of me is like, if you proceed to, to change, change things like world hunger or racial injustice, like those things make more like those are, those have significant lasting changing effects, you know, such that two years from now, Superman's world looks utterly different. You know, um, I do like the way that a lot of comic people, such as, for example, Kurt Busiek in, uh, in Avengers JLA, or the way that Morrison will occasionally talk, uh, he actually goes into greater detail, really, talking about the DC universe as as a universe that is is different from ours, and in the case of Busiek and Marvel DC, slightly different from one another in the sense of how they treat their heroes, how sort of how their world works, I guess. And a part, and I think actually that is, that itself can be something that is a panacea to long-term readers that can be an, an, uh, a, a barrier to, to, to it. I actually think I want to read that Legion story that you, uh, that yeah, Michael right? just talked about. So, and that's it. As somebody raised on original series Star Trek or even Star Trek Next Gen, I'm so for real world analogs. Like that is such a crucial part of my makeup of thinking about things and tackling things. And so, because you know what you're looking at isn't real. But you're also aware of it's a way of talking about them and learning to think about them and coming to terms with them in a way that doesn't have to be as mediated. And so there's a risk of it turning into just a crazy conspiracy theory realm of non-facts. But at the same time, it can still also be incredibly useful and interesting. So that's what I think. I, th- I, you know, I just think about, you know, 
the Englehart Captain America, right? Which right. which is great and feels like it says a lot more about the moment than it could have if it was oh, completely absolutely right like yeah. there. And I think the allegory can do that. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, I I think that. Uh, I'm so glad you this, mentioned that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, but I think that something like you know, Tom King's Omega Man mm-hmm. is in a weird way a better story about war than his Sheriff of Babylon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, or or Mr. Miracle for that matter. Yes, it actually, speaks a lot. Speaks a lot to uh, the realities of depression. Yes, right. By, by parsing it through like the, the the mechanism and mythology of the fourth world. That's right. Yeah, I think that's you actually know? a good. And thing I think there's a lot to be said about that. But at the same time, I don't think he's incredibly wrong that you bring in like ice mm-hmm. and you do break the superheroes. Yeah, because the superheroes should be stopping that. Right. Right. And I. Th- and I think that there's kind of a weird, fine line where, in a way, part of me is even like, almost like, come up with a magic reason why Superman can't do it. You know what I mean? Like, you can do really clever ways that, like, again, weird touch point, the, uh, the super, the 80 years of Superboy or whatever, celebration of Superboy's 80 years or whatever, has a Jerry Conway Superboy in the Legion of Heroes super uh, story that is basically Superboy leaving the Legion of Superheroes. Mm-hmm. And the reasons that they come up with it, you know, kind of make sense, you know. And so I think sometimes you can do those weird big things, not like corrupt cops you know are the result of a magic spell but maybe some sort of like let's say that you have a mr mitzelplik story where mr mitzelplik shows up and keeps fucking with superman and fucking things up and and won't leave when his name goes backwards and essentially more or less what it boils down to is mr mitzelplik is like look you have been doing all these things changing humanity by stopping corrupt cops or like you keep breaking up these protests and things how are you any different from what i'm doing to you and essentially i will stop fucking things up as long as you make a vow to you know this is just off the top of my head i've literally given this six seconds and i can see why it would be hateable but i think sometimes there's there are reasons why if it bothers you you can have one story that then can be ignored that explains why superman doesn't do shit but but like you said otherwise just having them in there i mean I think we're already in this weird sustained state of disbelief because every piece of art that I have consumed in the last six months does not have COVID in it, right? And so I'm already suspending disbelief about that. But in another four or five months, who knows? Like I've already found myself kind of going apart, separate and apart from the things that you and I have talked about where it's like suddenly they'll cut to a crowd scene and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I'm not ready for this kind of action. But, um, you know, it's just like when it's obvious that we can go, that humans can go a long way where their art doesn't have to literally mirror the real world. And there's also points where that changes. Sure. Well, yes, I agree with all of that, but Mm -hmm. there is also something to be said for, there is power in seeing Superman stand up to cops who then tear gas the crowd. Oh, absolutely. And you know, there is power when it's not allegory. There is power. Absolutely. When it's it's that direct and that blunt. Absolutely. And I am a big fan. How do I put it? 
part of me has this weird like oh superman batman captain america like Inkleheart's captain america to me is is i'm so glad you mentioned it it's such a perfect way because it is it is both literally addressing the thing that is happening but it also is not and i think that is a good place that is one of the better places for big two heroes to be because in a way we can't really expect too much of them. But yeah, I would be perfectly happy to have a Superman analog in there getting tear gas or also yeah. beating cops. Like again, Superman, Superman's origins in particular have a lot of, um, you know, beating up corrupt company mm-hmm. bosses and people who are breaking u- union busters and things. So, and that is, that is powerful stuff, but those were also things that were like characters who were not 80 years old and more or less, you knew ha- have to, in theory, be around for the next 80. So um, to answer uh, Michael's question, um, can I think of big two superhero comics that address world world concerns that were exceptionally good? I don't necessarily know about exceptionally because I think people really vary on that. But I think um, Steve Gerber's Marvel work uh, very much talked about the real world in some very direct ways. The one that is the most powerful for me is Omega the Unknown, which was about a youth in the ghetto um, who is... Uh, um, un- undergoing tremendous amounts of emotional strain and stress, and the way in which that his his he's weirdly tied to Omega, like the shit about sc- sc- bullying in schools there was so close to my own experience that um, it still sticks for me. There's other stuff like there's some scene where like an issue of Defenders where like giant rats jump on characters in a slumlord's apartment. This might be during the Brotherhood of Serpents storyline or something. And that's all pretty shocking, but also kind of way over the top. Um, sort of in the same way that Engelhart was, I think Gerber is great at at addressing real-world concerns in a very roundabout way. Like, um, Engelhart in particular was... Uh, I think really aware of the American susceptibility to groupthink and to cults Um, and a lot of his work satirically or not, that is like an ongoing concern. It's, it's also as somebody who pointed out is a, is a big ongoing concern of Kirby who is um, remarkably engaged with the times and has things to say in ways that in a way seem allegorical, but as people point out, like fucking Captain America's Mad Bomb is hugely prescient about America, power, and and how the rich foment dissent and madness as as a as a and social unrest as a form of control. And uh, in ways that that are um, that at the time were all but openly derided, you know, following directly on the on Engelhart's heels. But in fact, now looks like more of a very different way of approaching a lot of the same concerns. Right? Mm-hmm. 
So those are the ones that really come to my mind as far as sort of big two superhero stuff. I'm sure there are other things that I'm just uh, that that sadly, maybe if we think about, we can we can pop back in later. But yeah, yeah. So Uh, David Austin. Yeah. I rarely hear you guys talk about Euro comics or Bandai Destiny compared with American, British, or Japanese comics, yep. even though they've become a lot more accessible thanks to Comixology, Titan, and other distribution mechanisms. Curious if you have, if you have some favorites or recent picks. I enjoyed the Elric adaptation from a few years ago. Also curious whether you think European genre comics, fantasy, sci-fi, crime, etc., are smarter or more sophisticated and average than American genre comics, or they just tend to present as such because of more sophisticated visuals and more, quote, adult, unquote, themes. Right. Uh, so here's the thing. I actually, Graham, you should talk first because, of course, you, I, I'm, uh, as we know, have had a lot more experience uh, and exposure to Euro comics than I have. Yeah, it's funny. I I read this question earlier and had this moment of like, I haven't read enough Euro comics. Mm. I really haven't. In part because uh, I like I can't speak French. I can't speak German. I can't, you know, I can't speak Italian. And and my 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 experience is really limited, mm-hmm. you know. But that said, I got a bunch of books in from Magnetic Press this week, um, and and really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. I, Neil, I think it's called Neil's. I might be misremembering. It's sadly the book censors. Um, was was a book that I I absolutely fucking loved, uh, in large part because of the art, the, mm-hmm. the 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 dialogue, not amazingly great, and that's a problem I continually have. You know, I think about even things like you know um, the Incal. Mm-hmm. Right, the dialogue mm-hmm. seems still because of the translation. Right, um, but like I remember, I remember being in 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 Italy fucking years ago and picking up Dylan Dog and just being like, "Look at this fucking comic!" Right, <laughs> look at this comic. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So it's I don't feel like I don't feel like I've read enough. Mm-hmm. We definitely don't talk about nearly as much as as American, British, or Japanese comics. Right. Um, but I think that's because in both of our cases, like we're not amazingly well versed in them. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that that uh, as as pointed out, more of this stuff is has been coming to Comicsology, the 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 British stuff, uh, or the sorry, the Euro Bandesine stuff, and um, I would have to say that there is a super low band, low brow level of those comics that you don't see that I'm kind of interested in that only occasionally get introduced to us. And I think Dylan Dog is not a bad example of that, where Dylan Dog has been running for a long time, but has only had like a very small handful of translations, I think, through Dark Horse, um, probably because I suspect Mike Mignola was a fan, maybe. And um, they were kind of okay, but I'd like to read more of them. Similarly, of course, um, I would love the chance to read a lot of Diabolic. You know, Diabolic is all, you know, as an influence on Phantom X is part of a tradition of kind of of anti-hero badass, um, very much relevant to my interests. But that being said, by the time that I discovered by a a lot of the band Destiny started coming in, um, I find that. It just seems like gorgeous high production genre work, which I don't necessarily think that I care as much about. Ironically enough, the thing that I think might throw me off is 
the stuff that I do like instantly ceases to be, I cease to think of as genre work and instantly becomes its own stuff, right? So in- yeah. yeah. Instead of of calling uh, Jodorowsky or particularly Anki Bilal's work, which is fucking fabulous, Bilal's um, Nikopal trilogy is amazing to me. But I instantly think of it as Bilal, you know, sort of the same well, way Jodorowsky. Yeah, you know. and I think a lot of people too, right? Like, right. you know, somehow it's not science fiction anymore. It's, yeah. it's Mobius. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And that may be actually a big plus for the, the band Destiny market is a lot of those guys really build their names, you know, and because they are names, you know, they aren't just sort of churning out content in the content mill. They can, they sort of build their own rep for themselves. So for example, but like someone like Louis Trondheim, who has who is someone who I, whose work I adore and is exquisite. Again, I don't think of him as in what I think of as in the band SNA work. We talked about Brubaker and Phillips before the break. Brubaker and Phillips are, I think the ones who are closest to doing what I think of when you're talking about the band SNA work. And they scratch that itch for me in a way that the band SNA is too expensive for me to really spend the money, particularly now, to to try and find what really appeals to me. There's also things that 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 continue to really be super exciting to band Destiny people that don't like like Mobius has done multiple Blueberry books. I don't really. I've never been much of a Western comics man. Maybe that will change someday, but there is a vast swath of stuff even knowing that a lot of it is way more spaghetti western that i would like it kind of doesn't matter to me like there are things that i just i look at some of the crime and mystery band SNAs and and some of them are still kind of doing he's a flinty detective who likes his jazz and i'm like okay on the one hand this drawing of luxembourg looks great but on the other hand it all seems kind of trite so so I don't know enough and there's not a good entryway. And unfortunately, it's one of those things where I wish that I could get in there and be a passionate tastemaker and tell people about it. But I but I am not and I don't I mean, necessarily it, it, see it changing it, for me. In part because like we need tastemakers to tell us the good stuff, you know? Right. One of the things I think really helped manga crossover was I think through what there were, I mean, not gatekeepers per se, but people whose opinions you could trust. Absolutely. Who, who were like, oh, I've just read this. This is fucking amazing. And you're like, well, I've got to read that. Right. You know, honestly, exactly. when it comes to European comics, there's so much and I can't quite tell what is good and what isn't. Right. You exactly. Know? Like every, everyone knows about the the classics, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but beyond that, I'm I'm at sea. Yeah, I'm the same way. And you're absolutely right. Like, I'm at this stage now where I know what I like, I can do into genres, and people even ask my recommendations about manga, which is great. But that's been a process that's been going on for close to a decade. And as you point out, there are people like Jason Thompson, Shannon Garrity, uh, Joe McCulloch, you know, um, that uh, introduced me, and guys like who worked, be not only did criticism but also ended up working at viz as i think did almost all of those people except for joe like alvin Liu or the the passion that um 
uh, Torrin Smith or Carl Horn have brought that allow things like uh, GoGo13, which is one of my absolute favorites. Like, you know, gatekeepers, influencers, and people who read the stuff. And hopefully somewhere, someday, there will be someone who will do the same for Euro comics before um, he managed to sort of cancel himself out of comics. I thought that Brandon Graham had been a really good um, eclectic comic source um, who was good about talking about things and recommending things. Someone like Paul Pope, of course, was good about reading that stuff, but didn't uh, and, and mentioning it, but not all you didn't always find out about it. You know, like I knew about stuff like, Guido Crepax, um, which again, I don't think of as band SNA before them, but you can see their influence. So yeah, it's kind of a shame we don't have that. Um, so, uh, no, but, I, but again, like that's the thing, like, you yeah. know, everyone's like, oh, Manara or, right. or Mobius or, or Crepax. Mm-hmm. But that's like, that's work that's 30 years old, you know? Oh, at least. Like, like who's, do, who's doing that shit now? Old in some of that cases. No, absolutely. 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 And there is a lot, and a lot of that is very, right. You know, you would have to have a very, very passionate European guys writing about that and introducing that. You know, one of the things that's actually really a shame that I was kind of thinking about is, um, Comics, in a way, sort of dodged a bullet because Mark Siegel came and um, founded for second and helped bring a lot of European uh, influences and cartoonists in through first second and allowed that um, allowed us exposure to that, where which. The timing was fortuitous because I feel like it was right around the time that we lost Kim Thompson over at Fanographics. And Kim Thompson at Fanographics was similarly, as someone who had been raised in Europe, had ex- excellent European tastes, did a great job introducing that stuff. And in many cases was the only person, because he was translating it too, you know, that allowed it to get to our shores. So once he was gone, I think it's really, I, I don't think that I'm overstating it to say that he was a crucial figure in mm-hmm. any sort of Euro comics kind of trickling in. I, I, and I think you're right that like Mark Siegel for a second has, has performed like a really important service. Like I think about GP, mm-hmm. right? Or GP or however you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Like the first time I saw their work was it was in for a second book, mm-hmm. you know, like I, there are creators, like I said, I've read small amounts, mm-hmm. but nowhere near, you know, like, but again, think of the market penetration of manga versus Bandy Destiny. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it basically doesn't exist. Right. You know, so I think it is something that will happen, hopefully. Well, I hope so. With digital, maybe. Yeah. 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 I think one thing that is, that is important to, that, that you, I think you put a crucial, uh, finger on the button is manga you can crank out cheap volumes of manga because manga is designed to be printed in black and white so you can do the manga explosion happened because someone like tokyo pop didn't even want to pay the money to flip and reverse everything um which ended up being a huge boon to the industry but also made it even less expensive so Unfortunately, it is really, you know, as you know, DC purchased the rights to a bunch of Euro comics mm-hmm. um, like Jordorowski and Bilal, 
put out even relatively inexpensively priced um, reprints of those, and I think lost their fucking shirts, you know, because it was just the difference between taking the chance as a publisher of uh, of getting 200 pages of manga out for $7 that someone can read that's going to risk it as opposed to $15 on a 96-page album is really it's 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 a lot harder it's a it it's a harder way to break in i think yeah no i i think you're right i just uh we'll see if it happens like you know magnetic press is doing work humanized is doing good work um yeah you know for second is still doing good work mm-hmm. fantagraphics drawn a quarter late like there are publishers bringing european comics over yeah absolutely it's just i don't think there is enough and I don't think it's enough that, that especially we can call ourselves well-versed, but honestly that many people in the U.S. can unless they're honestly bringing the shit over themselves and translating it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. NBM does stuff as well, but it can. Right. And has like, for a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, where's where's the market penetration? Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, well, and even for NBM, so, there's stuff that's great and also stuff that's kind of like. Mm. So anyway, but yes, Stephen, yeah. this is a good segue, I think, because we're talking about the marketplace again. Uh, did you want to read it or am I supposed to read it? Go, go do it. Stephen Bagatorian says, I hope that's right. Speaking of desperate and dying, let's talk about the state of mainstream comics. More specifically, the price of mainstream comics. When I started reading comic books, they cost 65 cents at my local Circle K. Today, we live in the land of the three ninety nine and four ninety nine comic book price points that are wildly out of whack with the cost of inflation and the cost of minimum wage in this country. No matter what index you choose, comic book prices are just insane and seem to doom this medium to cultural obscurity, particularly now with the present economic horror show we're living through. I realize that the readership is shrinking dramatically, but to me, clearly, these absurdly escalating price points are a huge reason why this has happened not the only reason to be sure but a pretty big fucking big one is the paper floppy really a dead format parentheses no (laughs) would two dollar floppy sell substantially higher than their four dollar counterparts enough to justify the price drop parentheses i say yes to the last one at least i would take a chance on a whole lot more books at two bucks are we destined for comic book magazines in America that combine multiple issues in phone book style manga magazines? Graham. I mean, this is really close to, to Dominic's question, right? It like, is. We're not going to see $2 uh, floppies because the markup for retails and publishers is almost non-existent. Yeah. And so it's not worth them doing it. Are we going to see comic book magazines that combine multiple issues in phone book style manga magazines? Probably not. Uh, in large part because I think that DC tried it with the Walmart books and it didn't work. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, So I think we're basically just stuck with what we have. Is the paper floppy really a dead format? Yes and no. No, as long as the direct market continues to support it. But in all other terms, yes, it is. One of the things that is really hard about comics, and this may be the reason why it continues to survive that we didn't mention in Dominic's question, but is worth pointing out, is comic books are a kind of a duck-billed platypus of a product because there are those people who read uh, the big two mainstream superhero comics for the stories or for the characters or for the creators that they follow on their favorite characters, etc. 
there is also a not insignificant amount of the market that buys comics as a quote unquote collectible, as an investment in which the physical object has a value that is highly variable and has a mythology surrounding it that makes it uh, essentially a short-term commodity. Weirdly enough, despite in that way, despite being um, people talking about high art and low art and comics having been an example of low, comic book publishing in the United States is in a weird way much closer to the high end of art where you hear about artists who are actually supported by um, producing works of fine art that are purchased purely as financial investments by the rich and super rich and traded and an entire market of which that allows a very slim market of people to essentially have an incredible living producing um, works, but that is in no way something that you can think of as, you know, sustainable for very many people, right? So, uh, so weirdly, the comic book industry is close to that. And so part of me is like the printed floppy cannot easily go away because such a huge chunk of it still gets a lot of juice again sort of in the same way that whatever the fuck the duck bill platypus did was something that kept it from being just a duck or just a fucking yeah, yeah. platypus right mm -hmm. like it's got these funky evolutionary adaptations that are hard to figure out if you can lop them off and the beast is going to die that being said and the reason why i mention it and the reason why unfortunately i feel it's more relevant to S steven's question is graham did you see that recent did you i i knew you saw it because of how you work what you do for a living how closely did you read the press announcements and interviews with the restructuring at warner media and hbo networks how closely did i read them yeah like for example i mean i'll, I'll be honest i skimmed over them okay but like one of and i i have to say i for whatever reason read this article and then a friend of the podcast, Todd Allen, mentioned it in an email, which I think is quite crucial. I don't remember. I don't think it was Hollywood Reporter. It might have been either Deadline or Variety had an, a sh relatively short interview with um, impressive pseudo-human that is now the head of HBO networks. And I say that just because he literally said things like, Oh, ha, 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 when someone asked him if, if this, that the, this meant that they were going to change their, um, their expectation numbers for HBO max subscriptions, you know, that they had prophesized. Like the guy was like, Oh, ha, 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 I'm not ready to talk integers yet. Like I was just like, he is a guy <laughs> who honestly, uh, you could take his quotes, put them in the mouths of Jack Kirby characters uh, in the seventies, and be like, "Oh, Kirby wrote that. That's not that's not like a real person." All that being said, not just to diss this guy, what he talked about was that AT and T's goals with Warner Media, and especially considering. Because the people who came in are, are people who are literally replacing the people 
who built and launched HBO Max, which has not yes. been up that long, and they're no, gone. No, exactly. And 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 quote unquote, you know, as huge heroes and trumpeting, and we thank them for their service and stuff that makes it sound like they're not being kicked out for not delivering the goods, but you still wonder then why the fuck is this happening? One of the things that the new head was talking about is AT&T's interest with HBO is direct to consumer. Like Mm -hmm. that is the future of our marketplace is direct to consumer that we have these markets. Now, part of me is kind of curious if when HBO jumped from um, being shackled to cable services and opened HBO now, um, which then of course is now HBO max. If, Warner's and HBO saw so much fucking money that they were like, oh shit, us not doing direct to consumer, but rather allying ourselves with essentially cable uh, companies to deliver our products as parts of bundles and things really led to a huge, huge um, lot of money left on the table for us. This, if this gets moved to the direct marketplace and DC uh, is potentially quite troubling for the direct marketplace and a much better, um, in some ways, uh, an explanation of what DC is doing and has been doing. That AT&T has made steps in the marketplace that, that DC is not... Is, is basically like, you know what? If Diamond's not going to deliver the goods, we're going to set up retailers. We're going to set up a retail company. We have a mandate to get direct to consumer. Now, what that means in the future, I don't know. Because the comic book marketplace is a profitable one and a profitable one in print, as opposed to a much smaller, smaller slice in digital... I cannot believe that AT&T will take that commitment to direct a consumer to the point where they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're only doing digital. We're only doing it through all of our various doorstops, but you can do it anywhere. Like, you know, what if by having a subscription to HBO Max, you got to read every DC comic as it came out, you know? On the other hand, does that mean that every DC comic that comes out is more or less only everything that is being published by DC digital and not in print? Like that's a tremendous constriction of, of the marketplace. It manages to scale really nicely to ATT's expectations, but everyone would be like, no offense, but you are leaving close to $800 million a year on the table or whatever portion DC has of the roughly billion dollars that the direct marketplace and bookstores bring in. Like that's that's sure, a, but they will not leave that on the table. Right. Thing. Like I believe they are heading towards the thing you're talking about. Yes, I think so. Because too. I think that just works out for AT and T. To be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. but they will not leave that much money on the table. I agree. I agree, and that's it. I agree. Now. What what I think this means or may well mean is I am not sure if the direct marketplace can survive and the next five to ten years. 
Um, if it does, then we'll see what happens then. If it doesn't, I believe that comics are going to exist folded within these rubrics of this is what's included in your Disney Plus service. This is what's included in your HBO Max I mean, service. On, I'll be honest. I'm really surprised that like Disney and Marvel haven't gone down this road yet. It's really, but at the same time, seeing what did Marvel did in response to COVID, which honestly was basically nothing, yeah, makes me think that Marvel publishing is is so not a priority for Disney. <laughs> How do I put it? I think, and I could be wrong, that uh, Ike Perlmutter has marked off Marvel as his kingdom, and. Disney I, I, I will not let him do it. Uh, maybe. I don't, I don't think it's that. I think that, like, nobody gives a shit about Marvel Publishing. Well, I think that could be it. Maybe. I think it's like Promuter, my fact. Because I think Marvel has. Disney has seen so much mon money in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But in that sense of the, the, the closest that you can get is when they're like. Where's our All Ages Spider-Man book? Marvel can literally get away with licensing that work to IDW. Yeah, and, that's, and DC that's doesn't saying. give a shit. You know, that's that's what I'm saying. Disney cares about Marvel as an intellectual property company. Right. They care about Marvel Studios. Right. Marvel Publishing. I don't think they could give less of a shit about. It. And I would say that the proof in the pudding is, let's see what happens after Ike Perlmutter goes to jail. You know. <laughs> In a perfect yeah. world, no, exactly, or exactly. dies, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think the latter is more more likely than the former. I know, but, sadly, yeah. But one yeah, can dream, sadly. but mm -hmm. but nonetheless, um, yeah, we'll see. But I think that I think that no one really gives a shit about uh, Disney about Marvel publishing, which is very sad. But also lets them continue to do what they're doing. But you know, then we get back to it being very sad because what they want to do, King and Black. Well, so, yeah. and again, I I am firmly conv I'm convinced beyond all belief that Perlmutter has a firewall around Marvel Publishing. So, anyway, um, he, and, and I just, will say I will say that that Marvel doesn't care enough the way they did about the Marvel Center uh, about Marvel Studios to oust Perlmutter. They don't care that much, but I do think that so there is that they there is whatever level that is. Anyway, you were saying Ethan Johnson. Yes, what is DC doing? Seems like a bunch of titles are, quote, wrapping up, unquote, in a month or so. Is this the 5G reboot thing, or is that off the schedule because of COVID and Dan DiDio's departure? Um, I will just answer this to the best of my ability. I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> I think so, too. I think there's going to be some sort of reboot thing. I think... It, whatever the 5G thing was, where God knows there's been so much disinformation, I think that that is off the table. But it would not surprise me if if some sort of restructured reboot slash relaunch of of DC is coming. Um, but honestly, well, it's it's kind of got to have to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, metal. We said it before. Metal literally does away with the the universe as is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yep. But 
I, what that looks like, I have no idea. Right. I genuinely have no idea. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because part of me is like, I'm not sure if it's what we think of as reboot. It may actually weirdly be closer to, you know, Age of Heroes, uh, whatever, or whatever the fuck it was called when Marvel, what did Marvel, what, because Age of Heroes was different. What was Marvel's reboot branding post-Secret Wars called? Uh oh god what was Marvel was it not all new was that all new Marvel now I honestly don't remember oh it probably was all new Marvel now which sucks um yeah I think I think what I can see is they keep they keep the high numberings they don't start over for number ones for a lot of their quote unquote big titles but um frankly the 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 real the real question is if there hadn't been COVID would the would dc go big or would they do go small and i think they're going i think they're going to go smaller as in i think the i think a lot of stuff that was going to wrap up and then come back at in in whatever the 5g reboot was supposed to be is probably just going to go away and what's going to come back are you know, maybe 20 titles, 30 titles tops, I think, um, rather than wherever they're floating, which I would think would probably be in the mid thirties, low forties by now, but I have no idea for sure. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I wish I could shed more light. I wish I had any sort of insight in it, but I don't. So. Right. right. Absolutely. Oof. Tim Riffenberg said, hey, guys, already sent a question through Patreon, in which case I think he did it under a pseudonym. But if you're feeling kind, here's a quick one. Favorite anniversary comic, 100, 500th, 25th, etc. Mine is JLA 200, a fun throwback to early JLA with Jerry Conway, George Perez, and a bunch of short chapters with classic team-up slugfest by a jam of artists. Um, that is an amazing comic. It legitimately is. Mm -hmm. If you like DC superheroes and you haven't read it, you really should. If only for the art. You do. You've got like Boland doing Batman versus Green Arrow and Black Canary. See, I've got to you've check got, it out. Yeah. You've got Joe Kubert doing Superman versus Hawkman. Oh, God. Uh, Perez is in there. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I mean, it is. It's just, it's just an amazing excuse me it's an amazing looking book flash versus versus elongated man is in there hmm. uh and that's carmine infantino i was gonna say by infantino right wow yeah nice like it is it's just like it's this astonishingly astonishing looking book um you came up with like a whole fucking list of books i am going to say my one favorite anniversary comic <laughs> and then i do six okay yeah um, which is showcase issue 100 ah did you did you think of it before you saw it on my list or no Oh, I didn't even. Oh, yeah, I didn't even see it. Yeah, I, I, I thought of it when I first saw the question. Yeah, yeah, we've um, talked about our love for that. That is a fabulous. Uh, it, it, comic. For those who don't remember us talking about it before, Showcase Issue Hundred is a story involving every character who's had the lead strip in Showcase up until that point. So you've got Green Arrow, uh, Green Lantern, and Flash, sure, but you've got Lois Lane, you've got Angel and the Ape, you've got Space Cabby. You've got like the firemen's, whatever the firemen's. Yeah, whatever is. the goddamn firemen, sea devils, and they team up yeah. with Dolphin and the yeah. Spectres in there. And it's a good fucking story, too. It is. It's, just, it's really good. good. Yeah, it's it's actually great. That is that one is 
that made my list. But yeah, we've talked yeah. about that before. I don't think that's on Comixology and therefore DC Unlimited. I, yeah, Am I wrong? I don't think it is. It's no. a shame. It is a shame because that is a glorious um, fucking I, comic. Another one that is great uh, that I think is on DC Unlimited, uh, DC Universe and, and Comixology is World's Finest 300. Uh, which kind of only works if you've been reading World's Finest up until that point, because basically oh, Superman yeah. that one fallen out. Right, right. Uh, but they they uh, they basically like fall back in as a result of the story. But again, you have Ed Hannigan doing a lot of art. You have a Newton Titans chapter mm-hmm. by Wolfman and Perez. Wow, is it, was yeah. that David Anthony Kraft or who the fuck was yes, writing yes, at was. that point? Wow, holy shit! See, that's. I didn't yeah. want to say Close Johnson's thinking. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fabulous. That's a good thing. Yeah, it, it's, it's another really good one. Okay, so I'm going to list off mine because I thought that it would be fun to actually, because Tim mentioned 100th, 50th, 500th, 25th, um, I re- in part because one of the first things that jumped to mind was Amazing Spider-Man 150 was one of my favorites. Uh, because that's the the wrap up of the whole Jerry Conway's whole thing, which just wasn't thing for me. Anyway, so my favorite, uh, at least as of today, issue fifty, Master of Kung Fu number fifty, and Defenders number fifty. Love them both. Issue one hundred, the DC Showcase one hundred that Graham and I both talked about. It took a long time for me to come up without, and actually longer to come up with Conan the Barbarian number one hundred, which I loved because it was the wrapping up of the Belit queen of the black coast conan has a girlfriend which he had for like 50 issues which again is so much of what i wanted in comics issue 150 which is to say both a girlfriend and romance amazing spider-man uh 150 issue 200 i fantastic four uh 200 which people may remember us from the baxter building falls in a relative lull one which graham did had Far less patience for than I did, but even he admitted the Marv Wolfman, Keith Pollard, the team breaks up, team gets back together, culminating in issue 200, which is by and large, among other things, I think just an awesome Reed Richards, uh, Dr. Doom showdown. And issue 200, the conclusion of the Mad Bomb finale mentioned earlier here, issue 250, I'm going to pretend that John Byrne's fabulous Terror in a Tiny Town was actually issue 250 of FF instead that's, of 238. That, no, it wasn't. Yeah. Was that's say, what I'm saying. Issue 250 of FF is... Uh, Gladiator. Scrolls, maybe? It's Scrolls as Scrolls. X-Men and... Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the Scrolls as X-Men and Gladiator showing up. And it's okay. That's why I'm like, for my money, a much better issue 250 is Terror in a Tiny Town. Uh, even though it's 238 or whatever. Issue 300, Captain America. No one would back me on this. J.M. DeMatteis, Paul Neary, both the... the, the Is that Cap- the one where he's, he's like, like, old. president? No, 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 no. He's old. What happened is uh, the Red Scroll has caught him and essentially aged him. They, the, so the, the super soldier serum gets undone. But Red Scroll, Red Skull is also dying of a, a disease that I think was inflicted on him, like some sort of chemical agent from World War II. So it's kind of unsurprisingly for J.M. DeMatteis in his not too subtle way, it's literally two old men punching it out. And that's kind of his take on Captain America and the Red Skull. But what's also great is because it's DeMatteis, it's also kind of a statement about 
the eternal nature of those characters. I really liked it back then. I don't really know if it holds up. Amazing Spider-Man number 300. Weird choice for me because I think I barely read it, but realizing it's Venom and it is such a, it is such a, unlike issue 200 of, of FF, unlike issue 200 of Amazing Spider-Man, or it issues 100, 200, 300. Issue 300 of Amazing Spider-Man is when Spider-Man is is basically getting its second wind. And thanks to Venom, and thanks to Todd McFarlane, and thanks in no small part to David Michelini, it is, it's going to new heights, and basically more or less redefines the character. And a lot of that is like, like 300 is like when the wind is in the sails, you know what I mean? It's not necessarily, it's all been gathering to this. It's just like, we're already big and we're getting bigger. And so it's kind of a big triumphant. It's not nearly quite the sort of, Hey, weren't we great? It was like issue 300 is like, Oh shit. Look out for amazing Spider-Man issue 400 of detect. I chose detective comics Challenge of the Man Bat, written by Frank Robbins and Denny O'Neill and drawn by Neil Adams. Great. Just great. Like, I love that. Weirdly, I didn't have an issue 500. I can't think of one. That feels that feels odd. I know. Well, what? I have to say, a lot of the Superman, all of my favorite big Superman stories, very few of them end up being the stories in, that end up in issues the 300, 400, 500 I'm literally it's looking ever's. up Action Comics 500 right now. Yeah. Oh, I fucking love Action Comics 500. Do you? It's the it's the yeah it's the Life of Superman one. Yeah, I I like I genuinely do love that comic. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people do. I don't remember it enough to say that I would love it. Like, whereas if it was, and a, don't groan because I know how you feel about Alan Moore. If it was whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow or sure. for the Man Who Has Everything, it would it would fucking be on here. You know what I mean? Um. Issue 600, weirdly, Detective Comics again, because it's the conclusion of Blind Justice, Sam Hamm's three-part reworking of an old Iron Man story that is great and fucked up with Dennis Cohenart. And I, I while putting this list together, I'm like, okay, I got to fucking reread that because it can't hold up, but I loved it. Captain America 600, I loved Ed Brubaker do, in the middle of his... Captain America Renaissance, and I believe that is after Cap has been dead. That might be the issue where we where he quote unquote comes back, or we realize that he is it, it's, still alive. It's, yeah, I want to say it's the let's see, Captain America. It's, kind, it's kind of the turning point, as I recall. Yeah, I, I want to say it's, I want to say he is back by that point, but let's see. No, it's not. Yeah, see, exactly. It's not. Yeah. Yeah, so that it's it's, it's, it's where the it, one where it ends with the lead into the the, the miniseries where they're on back. Yeah, exactly. So kind of into that, and then issue seven hundred, Batman, uh, the the Grant Morrison, the Morrison. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is it's not my favorite issue of Morrison's Batman, but again, it's like issue seven hundred that happens while I'm loving the character. If I can give myself just a little bit of leeway, similar to the way that Terror in a Tiny Town is issue 250 of FF in my head canon, um, Hush, God Help Me, by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee is actually issue 600 of Batman, um, even though it starts at 610 or 611 or 608, I think is the first issue of Hush. So, 
Yeah, I've got to say, issue 600 of Action Comics again, I really love. Oh, there you go. Uh, it's it's Burn, Burn Inked by Perez mm. doing Superman and Wonder Woman teaming up against Darkseid. But there's also backups illustrated by Kurt Schaffenberger, Mike Mignola, Dick Giordano, and there's a bunch of pinups. Like, it's a really fucking good you issue. You know, I did have that issue, and I did like it, um, but... Uh, but not as much as I like Detective Comics 600. More than I like Cap 600, I have to say, though, yeah. probably. Um, okay, so there's a list, man. There's an anniversary no, issue that's list. That's a good one. Yeah, I thought I'd put Adam in the, the work. Because we're, we're going to rush through these questions, Jeff. Yeah, we're sorry, everyone. Do it. We just mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Three-part question and in or the run honor late. of the, the 300. What is the greatest Avengers run? What is the greatest GLA run? And between the two, which is better than the other? Okay. My answer is very quickly. Greatest Avengers is Engelhart's West Coast Avengers. For Ooh, me. nice. Greatest JLA is Morrison's JLA. Right. Uh, between the two, which is better, Morrison's JLA? Jeff, go. I was my joke answer was going to be: What is the greatest Avengers run? Engelhart. What is the greatest JLA run? Engelhart. Between the two, which is better, Engelhart. Um, uh, and that is almost entirely true. I would actually also say greatest JLA run is Morrison. But I am sorry, Graham. Uh, to me, Englehart's Avengers is is better. So. No, no, I I I, to- I totally get it. Dan Billings very quickly said, "What would you recommend to feel good about comics?" Yes, that is. I should say that's excerpted from a larger email where he was basically saying that he does not feel good about comics and that everything is a trash fire right now. Yeah, uh, I excerpted that question just with that because the really basic question feels to me like it's a really basic answer, mm-hmm. which is. What I recommend to feel good about comics is reading good comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there's there is a lot of shit in the world. There's a lot of shit in comics. Mm-hmm. There is, but there's also really good comics by really good people. Yeah. No, and and when I want to feel good about comics, I read the good shit. I find things that I've never seen before that I love. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember doing the Eisners in 2018, I guess, um, or 2018. Yeah. Um, and like I read so many fucking comics, Jeff, that I was I was fucking sick of them. But I remember reading Ellen Davis's Me and a, uh, a Me and You and a Biker. I can't I, I can't remember the name of it. God damn it. Mm-hmm. Me and the Bike in the Road, whatever it was called, the Ellen mm-hmm. Davis. Um, and I remember feeling so happy after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like just being like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. This comic is amazing. This person is amazing. This creator is, is astonishing. The same when I read uh, Rosemary Valerio O'Connell's uh, short box uh, release for the, for the Eisners as well. Like I was just totally on fire with the love of comics after that. Right. So what recommend to feel good about comics? Really good comics. Right. Uh, for me, I'm going to take a both uh, a, an approach, Dan, that hopefully will be. Um, maybe a little uh, helpful or equally as unhelpful. Um, <laughs> which, well, no, 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 no. Cause I know what you're saying, no, Jared, no, but I was no, teasing you, no, but, but, you, Jeff. <laughs> um, but, but I guess what I'm saying, Dan, is, is that, that to answer, to answer your question, um, what would you recommend to feel good about comics? Uh, I would say there's three things and I would like to think that wait what the podcast for me fortunately has had all three of them which is to say sometimes what's good to feel, what can help you feel good about comics is talking about comics with someone that you like 
Ah, so for me, talking with Graham has managed to keep me feeling good about comics, uh, even when I'm somewhat burnt out. Like, and so this is the other thing is for me is discovering, rediscovering what there's friendship, which I think this podcast has. There's agency, which the podcast does have in the sense of it is something that Graham and I do. Um, but if you don't have a podcast, finding, refinding your agency in comics is incredibly helpful. Uh, because I feel sometimes we end up shackled to something that is not giving us joy or is not giving us joy in part because we feel kind of shackled to it. We're trying to find a thing that it gave us and it kind of just feels frustrating and empty and hollow. And so for me, I would say the two goals to finding your agency in comics to feel better about them is either a leaning in or B leaning away, which is to say I started working at Comics Experience in the early 2000s so that I could write the newsletter for them and continue writing uh, the Fanboy Rampage column that Graham smartly stole the name off of and, and wrote to Internet Fame on. And I, by, I should say, by doing everything better than I could ever imagine doing. Oh, bless you. I was going to say, like, it couldn't be an anniversary episode without you bringing that up. Yeah, it's totally true. It's totally true. Absolutely. <laughs> Jeff's ability to hold a loving grudge, which actually I think was one of my favorite restaurants in San Francisco and <laughs> during that era. I I think that I was a, I was basically burnt out. And what was hard was reading. I was trying to read all the comics that, that came in every week because I was working Fridays so I could recommend them. And it was just accelerating my feeling of burnout. And that was when I basically, instead of leaning in, um, I leaned away, which is, to, and this also helped me back in the 90s, which is to say I looked at the manga shelf I started reading there and I kept pushing myself past all the frustrations that I had of the first 20 minutes of reading um, right to left where you're like, this doesn't work with my eyes. This isn't the way that I'm trained to read, et cetera, et cetera. And also what kind of material I ended up reading Love Hina, which is a, a harem comic and a comedy comic, but it is also a romance comic. And, and I think that is the other thing that really helped me is a lot of the manga that I read, even when it's driving me up a wall, because I can only find shit that is for, you know, kids between the ages of nine and 15, um, is about a lot of times is about community and it's about romance. And that's honestly, that was what I wanted from Claremont and Byrne or even Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men. That's what I wanted from 
uh, Amazing Spider-Man between the issues of 120 and 200, um, romance and community. And so what I realized was I was leaning into those things. So for me, I would say like, Dan, what, what is the thing that, what, that is that primal need in the comics? Is it, is it the expression of a cartoonist and therefore you should move into someone who can draw, who draws bold comics but not necessarily comics about superheroes is it characters and love in which case maybe it moves into the realm of manga is it in the sense of of learning the ins and outs of a superhero universe in which case move towards either Jordorowski's crazy insane universe or Judge Dredd's amazing mythos or even learning things through excellent nonfiction reportage comics. Um, so find what you loved about comics that that one element, if you can isolate it, lean into that and maybe at the same time lean away from your old habits and, and try and cultivate something new. And I, that is... That's that apart from being able to talk to Graham every week is probably what is still keeping me feeling good about comics. That was, I, that was lovely. <gasps> Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, we are at like, we're approaching two and a half hours. Keep going. Uh, we're going to go. Only, like we're, we're barely through any questions. Yay. Uh, we did it. Okay, we're so doing you... a two part. Yay. Q and A. I, yeah, I thought we'd we, never we really be able are. to do it. Yay! Uh, CJ Crowell. Yes. Said, Would you rather see a 1920s silent Batman film starring Buster Keaton or Spider Man starring Charlie Chaplin? Do you know uh, why he's asking this? Did you see my tweet? I, I don't. Ah! I... <laughs> Do you want the explanation for this? It'd be great if CJ's like, this isn't the reason at all. Um, so. Uh, I want the explanation. I, Do you want me to tell you my answer first? Yes, that seems fair. Batman and Buster Keaton. Of course. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. So the context is I had, I'm assuming, I hoping CJ never confirmed this, but earlier this week, thanks to my wife, I had um, the most seen tweet I have had in quite a long time. And the tweet itself was something along the lines of, because this literally really did happen, of my wife and I were talking about the Christopher Nolan Batman movies and and or the the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy and my wife said she much preferred the Buster Keaton Batmans and reader I am still recovering and so because it is the delight of she screwed up Michael Keaton and Buster Keaton and all of a sudden you're like oh Buster Keaton Batman that's awesome it would totally work and and so a lot of people were like tweeted that and I think it's just funny and great you quiet so maybe you don't agree which is good uh no, no, I, i'm agreeing i'm just i'm just listening just listening um so yes so that's where the question comes from so it's a very funny little in joke i have to say having thought about it part of me would make an argument that 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 to be pedantic it might be spider-man starring harold lloyd i think and then trying to yeah, figure I, out I, where yeah yeah I, I can see that yeah and see but I then it was, that might change my answer Yes, really interesting. Okay, good, good, good. 
I'm excited to hear that. Because I think so, too. I'm like, Spider-Man starring Harold Lloyd starts to become a little more like, uh, like you can see how it can happen. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That sort of, that also has bones on it. So, um, uh, Roger Winston's question. And then at that point, do we then wrap up and then come back for part two next week? Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. Although I, I, I think next week is a truck, isn't it? It is, but we could bounce it back a week if you wanted. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's, let's, let's do actually that. Let, let's let's move Drock this this time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll swap it, and then that way we can do three hundred and three hundred one. Or I love that we did classic Q and A, which is more than one episode. I love that so much. <laughs> I'm so glad. Oh Lord. Okay. Uh, do do Rogers' question. Roger Roger Winston uh, slash Flash said. Uh, one, if DC's 5G initiative had actually gone forward and, uh, as was rumored, Legacy's replacing originals, is that something you would have been in favor of and for how long? I think I would have been okay with it, but for like two years max. Two, is the pandemic not really, not really going to be the nail in the coffin of the comics industry or at least the direct market? I was sure it was, but now I'm wavering. Three, has quarantining slash self-isolating changed your eating habits for the better or worse or not at all? I'm eating less, but also probably less nutritiously and losing weight, but not the bad weight since there is also less exercise. I'm glad you got a diet question in. It also doesn't feel like an anniversary if we're not talking about our eating habits. Right. Yeah. I also like that it's a three-part question. I don't know why that feels very like anniversary absolutely well. absolutely and one for every hundred uh, episodes so i think that's good um i will quickly say uh i would have been in favor of it because honestly i feel that dc one of the things that still kills me is dc did a good job i think ultimately replacing barry allen and uh hal jordan with kyle rayner and wally west i reversed those um and I think that it was a, it wasn't necessarily a huge mistake to bring back Hal Jordan because he he if nothing else he needed a redemption arc. But I don't I do think that it was a mistake for Barry Allen hands down. Um, a lot of stuff that has worked for me honestly with comics is I'm shocked by how much I just mentioned Brubaker's Captain America, Bucky as Captain America with Steve Rogers gone off the book worked very well for me it lasted so much longer than we thought as well mm-hmm. and it worked at that mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. yeah you know it really it it like it successfully did the job it, i you know and it wasn't like um it wasn't like wally west it wasn't like Hal rayner mm-hmm. because they were in theory like permanently the replacements mm-hmm. from that point right yeah. and and Brubaker always meant for bucky to be temporary but he kept it going for far longer and it like it maybe didn't feel permanent but no one was really in any rush to get steve rogers back absolutely but i was actually a little regretful because it was like all of a sudden you had new story possibilities and there's a lot of people who felt the same about jane foster's thor in fact right yeah which again lasted for what two or three years at least you know like there is a way of doing 
replacements and keeping them there. I will say, like, in response to the question, mm-hmm. like, I'm in favor of exploring the legacies, but I also think that you can't necessarily do it with, like, a character like Superman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, or arguably Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you can maybe do it with Batman. And in part because, like, I think that, you know, Dick as Batman in the Morrison run yeah. worked really well. Very well. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, but the replacement Superman stuff uh, feels a bit, always feels a bit flat. But more importantly, if the rumored 5G thing happens, mm-hmm. which was everyone got replaced at once. Yes. That feels gimmicky. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say when I was thinking about it. Uh, actually, weirdly, just at this most recent break is even though Marvel was shamefacedly with marketing announcing that they were going to kill off every one of those heroes and replace them, at least they did it at a pace that sort of more or less slowly swapped them out. Like, again, Superior Spider-Man even worked very well as a new, quote-unquote, new Spider-Man for a much longer period. So if you have this storyline... But also, I think what helps is the inherent drama of you've got a new character that is dealing with other characters that have expectations. If all of a sudden it's the fucking JLA and every single person from top to bottom is new, I, part of me is kind of like it's it's not there's 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 no um, frisson there of drama. As much as it's more like the kind of you run the risk of like, oh, Superman and Batman are chums. They're like the best buddies. But Green, the new Green Lantern and the new Green Arrow hate each other. And the new Aquaman sleeping with the new Plastic Man. What? And part yeah. of me is like, uh, it doesn't, it just at that point, it doesn't really resonate in a way. Um, for me and it might be different uh, that was the other thing of course is if it's dick grayson as batman and jonathan kent is superman and then you know and then things sort of start getting trickier like who's who's the quote-unquote new aquaman who's the new green lantern like it just it kind of is a little again it almost gets to be a little too much of same old, same old. Like, you yeah, know, right. yeah, like Wally West being the Flash and looking at Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern and being like, we haven't we done this before? So, yeah, um, I, I'm overall, I think that it's I want to say that we could have dodged a bullet uh, with that one. But sadly, number two, question number two points out that we probably stepped out of the way of one bullet into a much, much bigger and more dangerous bullet. So, um, is the pandemic not going to be the nail in the coffin of the comics industry? Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel, yeah, I'm going to leave it as I don't know because I think that it actually could, but I think it could also be a really slow death. Right. Um, that, I think that's actually a great answer. Uh, we mentioned Brian Hibbs's name throughout here a couple of times throughout this episode, uh, because of our various apprenticeships with him and, and the fact that he's a guest of the podcast and we spun out of Savage Craig podcast, uh, website and everything. Brian had a heart attack this week, um, which I feel comfortable talking about because it finally got covered in bleeding cool, but it, 
happened on Monday. He sent, and I mean, he posted it on Facebook publicly, but that's how I found out about it. Uh, and I was terrified to death and reached out to Graham. I really was scared, in part because it was 2020. In part, it was a heart attack related to a bunch of some other issues that happened. But but um, Brian, like me, is relatively depending on how you look at it, comparatively young, 53. He's not one of the largest comic stores in the nation by any means. Um, you know, as he would point out, he's just sort of the noisiest. Um, but I think, I think that there have been so many difficulties to the direct marketplace opening up up new stores and being able to keep new stores open for many reasons that Brian talks about. Anyone who's interested in us talking our talks about the industry, I point you to his columns, Tilting at Windmills, that run over at the beat. Um, at least the first several hundred have been collected in two volumes published, I believe, by IDW. IDW, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely everything that we say. Um, well, actually, that's not true. Everything that I say, Graham definitely has his own um, knowledge and takes and intuition. But I very much was uh, a young apprentice uh, at Hibbs's feet and also have read those columns and, and very much believe much of his worldview. COVID has it, throughout the world, but especially in America, COVID is like one of those creepy black light things that they used to have in reality shows where they showed where all the food and blood and semen was on things. It essentially has highlighted where, the weaknesses in um, cultures and societies are. It shows where the most weak and where they're most likely to collapse. And so to me, it's not surprising that we're looking at the direct marketplace being like, how the hell can it stay open? But honestly, half the time, I think that about movie theaters. Um, I'm not sure that there are going to be movie theaters left. And in part, that's because so much of every part of the American industry because so much of every American industry has been um, parasitically eaten away by short-term greed. Almost nobody, uh, no industry has any kind of long-term plans or infrastructure that would prepare it. So... Honestly, again, talking about the duck-billed platypus that is the comics industry, you would think that this would kill the direct marketplace. I can honestly see it irradiating it and making it stronger, but I'm not quite sure how. Or rather, I should say, I can see where the com where comics as a medium and maybe as and as an industry is stronger, but I. But that is definitely like, for example, uh, Hibbs, who ran um, an, uh, uh, his his like book scan numbers at at his tilting at windmills at the beat, has pointed out the comics industry is so transformed um, in terms of what we talk about and what it actually is. It's now Scholastic and kids um, and is driving the huge chunk of money into the industry. Yeah. Like this is the last, last year is the first time that 
bookstores have outperformed comic stores. That's right. That's right. But comic stores are still doing strong. But comic they, stores are still up. Yes, they are still up. That's but, not true. They're up in terms of money. I don't think they're up in terms of unit sales. Yes, that is true. And that that is that is potentially worrying, but considering the nightmare year that we thought we were going for is still kind of surprising. Um, and I think it does also point to the fact that, honestly, I think that comic stores that were in the process of pivoting or developing a deeper bench for their kids' markets um, had had reason to, to, to shore up those numbers. I don't think it's all $10 Deadpool things. I think that it's a lot more $15 first second trades, you know, but um, so, so I, so honestly, I, uh, if you catch me, like, honestly, I was as much worried about the AT&T stuff that I mentioned earlier as I was about the coronavirus pandemic. But yeah, as Graham put it, I, who the hell knows, right? Jeff, how are your eating habits? Terrible, I have to say. Really? Yeah, I mean, I well, the last week they've been good, but Edie and I were Edie and I had our vegan year, and we ate pretty well in our vegan year, and we actually both lost weight. However, we were not exercising, so it wasn't it. It, it wasn't as as healthy a weight loss as it could be. It wasn't just pure terribleness. But then that wrapped up. We bought the house and it's it was a lot of stress eating and eating our feelings. And then COVID came along and I've been doing a lot of stress eating in COVID. A lot of a lot of Oreos have been eaten, a lot of um, processed food and we're doing less processed food. And if we can pick up on the exercising more, which has gone down thanks to a number of Jeff-related health problems that hopefully are now finally in the rearview mirror, um, I think we'll be better. But yeah, no, honestly, I cannot tell you. We were going out, buying Snickers bars, cutting them up and putting them in the freezer and eating little portions of frozen Snickers bars things that neither Edie or I have ever done in our first 50 plus years on the planet. And let me tell you, it's great, but it also, it is delicious. It genuinely is, but it had to stop. How about you, Graham? How are you? How are you eating? Um, Are you exercising? Am I? No, am I? I'm really not. Mm. And, and one of the things that I'm missing most is going for long walks. Yes. Which, you know, you can do, but like today, for example, was out, went down to like the, the main streets and it was fucking mobbed. Oh, Jesus. It was fucking mobbed. And I just didn't want to be there. Yeah. You know, because I was like, not all of you fuckers are wearing masks. Yep. Uh, definitely not observing like six feet difference. No, feet not at all. Yeah, exactly. And it really was just like, yep. shit. Yeah. Okay don't don't want to be here and so the idea of like i'm gonna go for a walk no because i'm going to run into this shit right you know so yeah my so my exercise is basically gone mm-hmm. um my diet's all right i think mm-hmm. I, you know i i said that but i literally like basically excuse me basically personally ate an entire you know packet of chips ahoy <laughs> in the uh, last night right but but for the most part, I would say my diet's okay. 
Oh, well, that's good. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's. It's. I don't think it has actually changed my eating habits. If anything, it's probably changed it for the better. Mm. Uh, because there is less like going out to the store, store around the corner for for you know I want a Twix. Right, you know, like well, there's there's much there's much less of that. I mean, I still do it occasionally, but there's, right. there's much much less of that. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's it's significantly changed my diet. Mm-hmm. But it has it has like it's it wrecked the idea of like I'm going to go out for exercise. Yeah. So uh, okay, but now you talking about your Snickers reminds me like when I was a kid, I used to get Twixes and stick them in the fridge. Ooh. And now I'm like, oh, I feel like I've got to get a Twix and stick it in the fridge. You should. That's, that's yeah, so you, good. you definitely should. Yeah, Twix are pretty good. I could see where a fridge in them would be nice. I think one of the things that's great about Twix is, is they've got that crispiness to them anyway. So, you know. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So what we're seeing, everyone, is we don't know how your diet has gone. But why don't you get a candy bar and either stick it in the fridge or the freezer? Yeah, definitely. And if you're going to put it in the freezer, cut it up first. It makes a huge difference. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah, yeah. you're gonna destroy your fucking. Teeth. Yeah, it's just a nightmare. Um, yeah, yeah. No, and I could go down the realm of chips and other things, and it's a good question. But I well, think you, between you know, COVID, you know I have been craving talking about chips. Mm. A chip butty, not like which is a French fry sandwich, essentially. Oh wow! But I've really been craving chip butty lately. I don't know what brought this on, but today in the Guardian, there's literally like how to make the best chip butty article, and I was like, are you fuckers reading my thoughts? Yeah, they probably are. Do you, could you make one? You guys don't have a fryer in there, do you? Yes, we do. Ooh, that's dangerous. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually glad we don't have any kind of fryer thing. Like, Edie can pan fry things because she's talented, but um, but yeah, I I have always been afraid of what how things would dramatically go wrong. Ah, um, oh dear. Okay, so. Um, I think I think we got to start moving I, to the closing yeah, I, comments. I, I think that's a place to, to wrap it up because, yeah. I mean, first of all, we're approaching three hours, which is the longest episode we've done in a long time. Yep. Uh, also, the next question is another long in-depth one. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I, I think, honestly, we could probably do an entire episode on Earth alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is one that I have to ask you from later on. Okay. Okay, very quickly. Sure. Uh, which was uh, I'm trying to find it now. God damn it! Uh, it's Chad Nevitz. Oh yes, which, yes. Which of you is which from below? And the quote is: "Oh, you two have a podcast. Which is the scholar and which is the clown?" Yes. Uh, I ask this because I read this and I had a response, and then I was told that my response was wrong. Really? Okay. So I'm going to go on a limb. This is going to be great. Which is, you were going to say that you were the clown and I was the scholar. And yes. Chloe said, no, absolutely not. You're the scholar and Jeff's the clown. And do you want to know why? Uh, oh, you mean she had reasons? Yes. Oh, God. Because I take things far more seriously. <laughs> I, th- I was going to say that um i was going to say that it's it's actually because of the fact that you work in the field and you literally week by week know more about what's going on i think my whole like because i tend to talk about older stuff it sort of suggests scholarly but well, i think i think i'm a huge it's the, goof. i think i think you're the smarter 
Oh no! Oh, that's very. I, kind I, no, I, oh. I think you're the smarter, which is why I'm like, oh no, you're you're definitely the scholar. No, but no, no, I've no. been told I've been told that's not true. I've been told that no, it's that's I right. Official not, reports, not, not because you are not smarter, <laughs> but because I take things more seriously. That's really funny. Which was, I think, said in a way that was not something to be proud of. <laughs> Well, you know, for what it's worth, Graham, I am not inclined to agree. My reasons for putting you as the scholar is very different. I would also say that when the show started in their early days, I think we were both better mixes of being both scholars and clowns. And I think that we've parsed a little bit more in our directions. I think because you're going to have the news and what's going on and the facts at your fingertips. I think I feel slightly more um, responsible to be uh, the irreverent one or the one that's going to, to like, like I've got to do something right. So it's either ask questions, which I hope I do. um, And also occasionally crack jokes, which I hope I do. So, yeah, I would say that sadly over time, You've become more of the scholar, and I've become more of the clown. I think that is the place to leave it. I'm yeah. just, going to, just <laughs> going to throw that out there. Okay, show notes are going to be up in this uh, for this episode at waitwhatpodcasts.com. We have a Tumblr, which I totally didn't update this week because I honestly don't know. Things apparently got in the way. Yes. I'm, I'm doing a shrug emoji because honestly, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Um, that's waitwhatpod.tumblr.com instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod we have a twitter account at waitwhatpodcast we also have Jeff on twitter solo at lazybastard at l-a-z-y-b-a-s-t-i-d and we have me on twitter at graham at g-r-a-e-m-e-m we are a patreon supporter podcast because you people are all lovely Jeff, why don't you tell the lovely Patreon people what they won? Yeah, it's so funny. I was thinking the what they won line, maybe because it you used tell. You guys, uh, congratulations. You've won 300 plus episodes of Graham and I gabbing at length. And uh, this is this is this is a gift that um, uh, enriches the giver, which is to say that I feel uh, absolutely incredibly lucky to be able to have done it and to continue to do it this long. And there were actually a few years ago, uh, a period of time that feels like it was not too long ago, which means that maybe that it was where I was not sure that I was going to be able to continue to podcast and balance work responsibilities and had made noises about stepping away. Um, and I'm really glad that for the, that, that those that we worked through that and I'm, I'm, I'm more I'm I'm definitely more hyped up about about the show than ever, which sadly is uh, a sign that we've jumped the shark perhaps long ago. But I'm very happy to have done so in that sense uh, and in such good company. Uh, all of our listeners are important to us. We try and make it a point to mention that. And uh, it is worth mentioning that, um, you know. Every episode, if you can find our RSS feed, we host them all. You can listen to them start to finish um, with nary a stamps.com advertisement in sight. Uh, And in part, that is thanks to the wonderful people at Patreon who not only support us with their ears, but a little bit of their hard-earned dosh 
to keep us um, motivated, uh, to remind us that, that this does matter to people because otherwise it can just sort of slip into that abstract realm of, well, I threw it out in the internet and it got two likes. So is it really worth my time? You know, kind of concept. Is, is, it, is it worth your time, Jeff? I know. Isn't that the question though? I mean, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean that about this podcast, but like, for example, I thought we did a pretty good job with our last podcast. And I think uh, to date we have like six comments on it. And I was like, uh, three of three of which are about something that has nothing to do with the actual podcast, but is, is stuff that happened later. Uh, and I'm like, just like, so I guess this episode sucked, which is not true at all. I think it was a good episode. And even the people who commented were like entertaining, but I mean, but I'll never know. And my self-esteem is never quite good enough to be like, Oh, that was good. So people being like, I liked it. I'm like, yay. And they're like, by the way, I'm serving a long term in prison for like killing and eating people. I'm like, but you liked it, right? You know, and similarly, the more up that stage goes. So the fact that people are like, I am so grateful for all the hundreds of hours that you have spent entertaining me. Here is some money um, as a as a way to thank you and keep you motivated. I'm like. Son of a bitch, this really, this does matter to someone more than my fragile self-ego and Graham's uh, um, almost unending uh, generosity, you know? So th it's, it's, it, that, that actually is, that means, that does, it means a ton. Thank you. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Dominic El Franco and Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. Um, we are especially grateful for their continuing support of this podcast. And as I mentioned, they are the yin and yang of our wait, what cosmic defense system. So thank you. Also, um, I'll have to mention it in part two, but God bless the person who not only asked questions, but also gave a hell Empress Audrey um, at the end of it. Right. That made that... my day. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. It's, yep. it's good it's good to know that people understand the importance of empresagery indeed um we have already said this although who knows if jeff's going to leave it in but next week should have been a drug but we're going to do the second uh, part of the q a yay it's, uh it's it's a, a long-running tradition that we're going to ask for questions and then get through half of them i think we've even gotten through less than half this time i think so i think so but on uh, the but i think that's standard that's standard for us yes <laughs> Not a good thing, but sure. Sure, yeah, we'll see. The thing that I'm dreading, and I don't mean that in a bad way, and I also don't mean it in a drock pun, is that, that a lot of times people will then listen to this part and then think of their questions and then submit them in, so then we'll get more questions for part two, even yeah, though that, we're in that, it. That's happened. Yeah, yeah, that has happened, and that may happen again, and we're trained professionals uh, in our lack of professionalism <laughs> or when it comes to our lack of professionalism. So we will make it work. So, um, but yes, no drop, which is kind of a relief because I haven't even really started. Um, and God help me. I just don't know if that first Batman dread crossover is going to be enough to sustain me through everything else. So, oh, just, 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 just you wait. Just you wait. This, this, the. I knew the the Graham McMillan comfort phrase was was was, was, was around right the corner. Indeed, indeed, it was. 
Uh, I'm, look, that's the best place to end it. Uh, thank you very much for your questions. Thank you for listening for however many of the 300 episodes, which have been more than 300 episodes. But thank you very much for all of those as well. <laughs> um, we're going to be back in a week with more questions and, you know, maybe some answers. Who can even fucking tell? Bye! Yeah.